0: You're listening to episode 93 of the Comics Pals. We're a group of comic book journalists and friends who record a podcast together because we don't talk enough about comics in our daily lives.
1: It's your eye on the ground, American Dreamboat, Philip Casey, back from San Diego Comic-Con, complete with a new California accent. There were so many dizzying highs, trembling lows, but the one thing that was clear is that the Venom trailer stood tall. It's the talk of the nation, the bell of the con. It's
2: good to be back, my dudes. Let's talk about Venom for the next two hours. There's nothing I would... There was nothing in the world I would rather do less than talk to you about Venom for two hours with you doing that voice. (laughs) That's why we all (laughs) talk in California. (laughs) That's why I hate it there. No, I'm just kidding. It's okay. (laughs)
3: subpar 4 out of 10
2: it's fine I like it I like it fine east coast best coast though
3: oh
1: that doesn't rhyme
0: how dare you get on this show facts don't need to rhyme after being gone for two weeks and lie to the people
1: what are you You talking about San Diego was a blast
0: you were not in San Diego Comic Con I'm not even clear that you were in San Diego at all and uh
1: listen I could I could prove it. You wanna know how? How? There was grass in the ground. There was water to the left of me. Ground to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle of you. I'm back.
3: Jesus. Awful. Oh, there uh, was so
1: much great stuff at California. I'm gonna hold the hostage show here and talk about San Diego Comic Con. Uh man. We did great. that. We already you did that. You guys weren't there, you missed my uh personal experience there.
0: You missed our huge conversation about San Diego Comic-Con over the last two episodes, uh, so you missed your opportunity to comment on all of that, and I don't like your new accent. I personally <laughs> vote that Phil be removed from this show. Absolutely,
2: uh, I
3: second that. No.
2: Yeah, I'm saying we, we get no. rid of him, and he can, and him and Kale can go do their own thing. The three of us, we had a good rhythm these last two weeks, and he just comes in here and fucks up. You shut know, up, didn't up for take a second, a s- Pete, Didn't even listen. take his... Hey, 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 shut up for a second, Phil. <laughs> <Every> <laughs> See, now good that kale gone, I can a steal his bit. <laughs> I thought you made a fucking face turn this season. Not anymore. I'm like the
1: big show from WWE. I've made more face and heel turns than anyone else. <laughs> Woo!
0: Maybe one day you could become the mayor, just like Kane. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> uh, we are here. We're happy to be here. Happy to be doing this again for our 93rd time. Uh, boy, is this show getting old. It's <laughs> on the verge of death, uh, which is very <laughs> sad. It's on life but- support. Yeah, that's that's the way things go. That's the way things go. And if Phil continues to bring opening jokes of that quality, someone is going to take us off life support. <laughs> so uh, hopefully, we can improve the quality.
1: <laughs> the <lame> fucking reaction.
2: <laughs> I ha- I had to cough, and then I just couldn't swallow the cough or the laugh. So <laughs> uh,
0: we have some we have some plugs to get through. Uh, before we dive into the meat of the show today we're gonna be talking about a bunch of really really cool stuff including the fact that it is the 10th anniversary of the dark knight film being released not today but you know in general this year
1: wait a second Uh, wait a second marco yes do you hear that funky beat i do Someone just said the secret word of the week, because we're back hey. here in Phil's Funky Factoid of the Day. Yes! On this week in history, 28 years ago in 1990, Batman Tales of the Dark Knight number 10 release, tying in with our Batman Gothic book club. Give it a listen. This has been Funky Phil's Factoid of the Day.
0: And just like that, we are off life support and nearing death. (laughs) No, we're back, baby. No, I don't think we are. So if you want to send your thoughts and prayers our way, uh, you can get us on Apple Podcasts for the very last time. Uh, We are also on SoundCloud. That was a a lot. Don't say that, man. Uh, People
2: are going to be like, is this your last episode?
0: Then maybe they'll tune in. Uh, So uh, we're also on SoundCloud. You can send your well wishes to us. Uh, on social media at the comics pals you can write to us at the ComicsPals and gmail.com with your eulogies um, and your random questions of the week someone else will do this show and they'll read all that jazz um, on the relaunch that'll be happening next week the all new all different comics pals <laughs> and last but not least we are on youtube where if you are checking us out on there you can leave us a like drop us a comment share this video with your friends and subscribe to our channel for more awesome content Uh, although i'm not sure how much more we'll be able to release given that we're going to be dead Um, (laughs) but subscribing is free to do and it helps us out a lot more than it costs you so make sure to head over there and do that for us so we're going to start the show with some listener mail because it's been a while since we've done that and uh given how hectic Things were during San Diego Comic Con, we didn't want to, you know, pile on. You're telling me, man. Stop. All right.
2: Uh, So, Pete, why don't you take it away? Uh, Glad to, Um, especially because I'm taking it away from Phil. I never had it to begin with. We know. (laughs) <laughs> All right, uh, so we got a uh, a hefty hefty email from our buddy Harris back on episode ninety of the Comics Pals, our diehard comics fans, outcasts of the industry. Um, so that that's an episode that I missed out on, uh, but I know that was a a, a pretty meaty one, and uh, Harris had a lot of thoughts. So uh, here's here's what he wrote in to say. It was a weird episode sometime after the opening minutes and turned into an Iron Fist drinking game. Did Kale disappear? Because I swear, all I heard uh, most times is, I am the immortal Iron Fist.
4: <laughs>
2: <laughs> Kale's not even here to defend himself. Um, so, yeah, no, he's Iron Fist. That's that's yeah, why he actually left the show. He's confirmed. off, uh, you know, fighting ninjas or whatever he does. He's in <laughs> anyway, somehow, uh, after going through many detectives and fortune tellers to know it was code from the Adventure Zone graphic novel, which I am hyped uh, to really read and check out, I'm a big D&D fan and happy to see the game uh, more in comics. This following Skull Kickers, Rat Queens, shoutouts to that, and the recent Vox Machina books. Um, so then moving along, he says, Black Widow movie, not a care in the world. There was a prime time to have this and or a Hawkeye movie, and it's long past for me. I agree it is no fault of the actress alone. It all boils down to bad timing and poor development on her character. I'm still on the fence about the studio using a span of movies to develop Hulk's character. I understand the issues with movie rights and all, but it would be great if Hulk actually had a standalone film. Yeah. Uh, so then he, he, oh, well, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead.
0: Yeah. Um, I, I mean... We we talked about the Black Widow thing. It's unfair to blame Scarlett Johansson for the timing. She doesn't choose that. Uh, when it comes to the Hulk, though, I mean, you really can't... You you can't fault Marvel at all for the way that they're choosing to handle the character. They can't make the movie. So if they can't make the movie, this is the only thing that they can do. And they're trying their best to develop the basically the only character of the Avengers who they can't make a movie with, they're trying to use the time they have with him effectively. So you can't really blame them. They're doing
2: their best. No, and and I and I think it's, like, generally been effective, you know? Like, I. it would be great to have, like, a standalone Hulk series again, but, like, in the same breath, um, I thought what they did with him in, like, Thor Ragnarok was really good, you know? Um, and I enjoyed it quite a bit.
0: Yeah, and to be honest, I mean, most people... Not including me, but most people really didn't like the last Hulk movie, so I don't know where all these people are coming from who are clamoring for a Hulk movie when they've never liked any of the ones that have been made. So,
1: yeah, the
2: sun's getting real low, Sean. <laughs> Carry on, dun, dun, nah, nah. uh, <laughs> so yeah, then uh, he had some stuff to say about uh, Die Die Die. Uh, so he said, "Kirkman and Gimple in a new comic. Not completely sold on the premise, but I would give it a shot. There hasn't been a book I really disliked from Kirkman, and that's why we're boys, Harris. Uh, full disclosure: I dropped Walking Dead around issue ninety. That was a mistake. Um, well, uh, that's
1: totalizing?
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, this is this is you know whatever. Shut up. This is I get to read the mail, all right? But it's <laughs> your segment. You can do what you want to do. You had your funky fact." <laughs> um he said i hope he revives amazing wolfman at some point uh i man me too i was a big fan of amazing wolfman um i doubt that we're going to see that though uh he was always kind of like a like a tertiary invincible character now that invincible is done i think that's probably i think that's probably something that we're not going to see him go back to unfortunately um but then he says, "I've uh yet to finish Invincible, and I'll take my time finishing it. What a great ride. Could not agree more, man? Um, Sean, favorite. Do, do you think
1: we should like leave Pete and Harris to their own devices?
2: <laughs> uh, I do
0: I do. I think that uh, they have a special bond that
2: you know they should cultivate somewhere, not on this podcast. <laughs> Damn. Don't be jealous, because I'm a man of the people, and the fans love me, all right? I've always been a face. I didn't need to turn.
0: I mean, you're, he hasn't mentioned you. You're the one who's tired.
1: <laughs> like. You're reading in, my dude. You're reading out and reading in, if you know
2: what I mean. Gross. You know, I don't, <laughs> but I'm going to move on. Go on. So, Umbrella Academy. I have great interest in how the story will progress. The synopsis is going into a lot of interesting directions, and I wonder how it all ties in or doesn't. Uh, Why the Last Man casting is really good I just hope they change a couple things from the book To a smoother final act On that subject uh, They're actually Not calling the
0: show
1: Why the Last Man They're simply calling it Why I
4: feel
1: like there was a show called Why In the last 10 years Am I mistaken folks Uh, I've not I I can't recall that I remember a show called XY
0: Uh, I remember that
2: yeah, and there's Kyle X Y.
1: <laughs> Who can forget Kyle X Y?
0: And there's a show called The Last Man Standing and Last Man on Earth. So it's possible that they're uh, trying to skirt those by calling. Yeah,
2: avoid XY. the brand confusion. Yeah.
1: Oh, is is one of those that Tim Allen show?
2: Last Man Standing is the. Ah. <laughs> And then there's um there's that other guy who's like always been like a number two or like a bit player and he's the lead on last man on earth. That's the con uh, Kristen Schall's yeah. in it. That's a good one. Um so yeah, I-, I think you're probably right, Sean. I would imagine that's why they're um doing that. No pun intended there. And uh also like technically speaking, like you know, the book is called Why Colin the Last Man. So it's like it makes sense. It's, like, it's not super weird. No yeah. one wants to get um, that show confused with Tim Allen. No. Nobody does. Uh, but, yeah, in terms of in terms of uh, what Harris said here, I definitely don't want to talk about the ending or the final act because I think there are a lot of people who haven't read why and will probably have interest in it because of the fact that it's going to get adapted. So, obviously, we don't want to spoil anything for anybody, but um, I – I think I probably agree with what you're putting putting down here, because I think the ending is definitely the shakiest part of the story. So there's really there's yeah, and uh, you you don't agree?
3: No, I I loved it
2: because I I like the ending. I just think there's elements about how the ending like plays out that do feel like a little messy. I guess
3: I haven't read it in a while, but I remember like it being very satisfactory for me and uh, me enjoying that ride
2: That's cool. It's funny because I remember I I finished it and I was like I hate that ending. And then really? I like thought about it a little bit and I was like no, I like it. I, it just emotionally upset me. And like yeah, that's yeah, good. Yeah. Um but I do think it 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 like it feels a little bit like it goes from 0 to 100 and then 150 and it's like I I remember, like, feeling like I got whiplash from it when I read it the first time. But I was also young, you know? Like, I was, like, 16. Um, So, you know, maybe that had something to do with it. But, uh, yeah, upon rereading it, I don't have that same opinion, though. So I I, I think that there are probably things about it they could do, like, pacing-wise that would maybe make it feel a little bit less, like, you know... um, out of like totally rapid. left field. Yeah, yeah. Or just like feel like it just it doesn't feel like we're rushing to the ending all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, I agree. Um and that's and that's really my only criticism of the book. So What uh, put? Do you, what put Shut up, Phil. Then uh, he goes on to say, Hardcore comics fans are now definite outcasts, but a lot of it is really on the number who are amazingly elitist about comic books in general. However, for the great number who enjoy comics as the medium, I can see the alienation with new paper stock and availability. Putting comics in Walmart is fine to draw new viewers, only if there is a dedicated section for comics. As it stands, I don't see them doing that. These exclusive editions will be placed on the shelves with other magazines with little... Uh, I think he means to say thought. Yeah, a little yeah. thought of organization uh, or thought of promotion. Uh, maybe, uh, maybe, just maybe, some kid or adult may look at one and pick it up on a lazy afternoon. Most people will walk by and not even take a single glance at them no matter how good they are. What I'm getting at, to have comics at a larger department store versus it being at a bookstore like Barnes & Noble is too vast of a gap to draw in new people to comics. In the very least, at a Barnes & Noble, you can get a comic or two on the way to getting a coffee or a slight concession. How Walmart is set up, there is a huge doubt in seeing anything similar, and the amount of investment to set this up is generally cost prohibitive. I think so, that's a good point. We're, we're going to talk about this later, but he's wrong. Um, <laughs>
0: yeah, that's not, that's not true. Uh, the comics at Walmart are performing well. Really? Um, yes, they're, That's they're cool. performing well. Uh, people are high on heroes, superheroes right now. Batman is front and center in those books, and who doesn't love Batman? If your kid walks by and sees, you know, Batman on a cover of a, of a cool looking magazine, why wouldn't they want it? You know, I I, I think. You know, and it's again, it's not a, it's not a this or that it's it's Barnes and Noble and it's Walmart, you know,
2: right, right. Um, you want to get that scattershot approach and hit as many developing or new markets as possible. Yeah,
0: but we're going to talk about that more a little later. So we'll elaborate on that when we get to that topic.
2: Cool. All right. Yeah. So we'll get We'll get into that a little bit later. Uh, and then Harris also had, uh, you know, a little Yeah, he had, he had a question for us, you guys. Um, well,
1: wait, wait. Before we get into that, I did want to make a point about something he said because I feel like we're going to get real uh, somewhere else very quick if that happens. Do it. So he made note of the Adventure Zone comic, uh, how he was excited for it, and uh, just a little update on that from uh, from all all reports that was number one on the New York Times best selling list, and apparently, uh, as far as Justin McElroy, one of the brothers who was one of the writers of the book said that was the first time a graphic novel had ever been number one on the New York Times bestselling list. Uh, good yeah, for those that as well. boys. That's incredible. Good and good for comics. too. It's a non-superhero indie
2: book. Yeah, who's publishing that? It's like some random company, right? Or is it them? Like, I'm It's checking. not like a big name, is it? I don't think so. I'm looking it up, though. But yeah, I I, that is really cool. I mean, obviously, great for them. um, But yeah, I think you're right that that is great for comics too. Uh, Seeing a comic at the top of the New York Times bestseller is obviously, you know, pretty surprising. And you have to imagine there's got to be a considerable number of people who tuned in for that that have maybe never read a comic and maybe this, you know, spurred their interest.
1: Yeah. So I I've been meaning to pick it up myself. I just haven't gotten around to it.
2: Did you find out who's publishing it?
3: It's uh it looks like first second.
2: Well It's not
3: Macmillan publishers.
1: I, I saw Macmillan. Macmillan's a big publisher in general. And I I, I I have a feeling, Pete, that you wanna ask us a question.
2: But... Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, well we had a question. We have a question from our buddy Harris. Um, you know, it's, it's and it's 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 a it's a big question, and I think it's good enough to be considered the random! Question of the
1: week, guys. Very good. I just saw a massive mushroom cloud over the Atlantic Ocean.
2: <laughs> 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 Don't know. I got it. What rivalry in comics has maintained an impact on you as a reader? For myself, Captain America, and Nuke, the conflict between their motivations and philosophy for the same ideology has always been something I have looked forward to. It always felt amazingly grounded and relatable whenever they crossed paths. Mm. It's a good question. Yeah, I really like this question. What is a What, what is a villain hero dynamic that has maintained heat for you? Yeah,
1: well, I uh, the first appearance of Nuke was in frank miller's daredevil run and uh that was also that also featured and utilized captain america and i have to agree like that's a really good one nuke is a very good like not a major antagonist for cap but it's a good like ideological foil of someone that is by nature uh uh zealot for patriotism and 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 this nationalism which is not really Cap's thing. Cap isn't like a ardent nationalist. He's more of like a... He believes in the dream, which he likes to remind us. That's it's good. Good on you, Harris.
0: It's funny because I think... I think Nukes' um, ideology is more in line with what people... Like the average person thinks Captain America's is.
1: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. A, lot, a lot of people think Cap is like the... World War II propaganda figure that just sells war bonds and he's like, Uncle Sam, here I am, kind of thing. Uh, man, that's not his deal and it never really has been. Is Nuke is the 2018 equivalent of a 4chan alt-writer who just logs his complaints about Obama on, on the internet and uh, and is a big conspiracy nut?
0: My answer is, is Reed Richards and Dr. Doom.
1: Yeah, that's good. So Classic. Yeah,
0: it's a, it's classic, and um, for me, as and you know, the new Fantastic Four book is actually coming out this upcoming week, which I'm super excited about. And a big reason for that is that I love the dynamic between Reed and Doom. I think that Doctor Doom is such a an interesting character because he's he really is a genius, and you could argue an equivalent of Reed intellectually speaking. His problem is his ego. And as cold as Reed Richards is from time to time, and how he's perceived to be by the masses this very calculating person, the difference between him and Doom is that Reed ultimately wants what's best for everyone for humanity, for society, and he works tirelessly uh you you could argue selflessly to see that end, uh, whereas. Dr Doom really only cares about Dr Doom. Uh and we've seen in the more recent books what Doom is like when Reed Richards is out of the equation. And he's actually kind of a good person. He's tried to do the right thing. He's tried to help people. Uh he's tried to turn over a new leaf because the 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 thing that he's the most focused on is eliminated, you know, his co- his competition with Reed Richards consumes everything about him as a whole and uh with that out of the way he's free to kind of just be the person who he really wants to be and the person who he actually sees himself as it's similar to how people talk about what would happen if superman didn't exist what would lex luther be like uh could he really cure cancer would he really be a good person so i kind of see that similarly and it's been interesting to see what's taken place in Secret Wars. But, uh, so for me, that's my answer. I'm endlessly fascinated by seeing those two together. And they got the perfect end to their storyline in Secret Wars. If you haven't checked that out, I recommend doing so.
1: There's a, yeah, there's like an endless contrast between Reed's utilitarianism, where Reed will do whatever is best for the majority almost to like a calculated degree. It's like very Mr. Spock from Star Trek. That's like, that was always his kind of thing. First is Dr. Doom's kind of objectivism, which is like, I will do what's best for me. What's best for me is best for everyone kind of thing. Uh, that's, that's good. That's a good one. That's, there's a reason why that's been so pervasive for the last 50 years.
3: For me, and something similar to, uh, Sean, what you were kind of saying between like, uh, Reed Richards and Dr. Doom, um, I was gonna go for like a cheap answer of like the Joker and Batman because I couldn't think of anything. Uh, but uh, Swamp Thing and Arcane. Really? Uh, okay. Oh, I yeah. couldn't think
1: of anything, so I thought of my fucking thing I rest my laurels on.
3: Well, like, like uh, I tried. I tried to avoid it. Anyway, besides the point. Um, the the idea of reclaiming humanity versus giving up humanity. Um, uh, Swamp Thing has his colon has his humanity shipped away from him and ultimately destroyed until it's like rediscovered um outside of a physical body so like I, like the, the soul is the the character and the soul is the uh the the actual person whereas arcane who is like the arch nemesis is trying to um claim immortality at the expense of his humanity which ultimately leads him to deform his own body he experiments on his own thing on his in uh, his own person, he twists himself physically and mentally to the point where he becomes obsessed, uh, uh, destroying uh, Alec because he blames him for that transformation. When ultimately it was himself reaching for a goal outside of his actual, uh, outside of his power. And um, so that that's always been cool. That kind of that kind of, way of just trying to reclaim humanity versus blaming others for the destruction of your own. Um, and that like those two forces fighting against each other
2: fascinating. I love that. Huh. So, yeah, it took me a minute to to land on this one, um, but yeah, I think probably for me the most compelling rivalry in comics has always been uh Professor X and Magneto. Um because I like that for me anyway, uh they're written the best when neither of them is really a villain, you know, uh, or or a hero. You know that like they both have the same goal ultimately. Um, which is, you know, like, uh, a positive future for mutant kind, but they just fundamentally disagree on what that is. And even though they respect each other, even though they're old friends and they have a lot of love for each other, um, you know, at times anyway, um, there's, like, uh, there's definitely, like, just that impasse, you know, and that it is just, like, what is the path forward? And when you're dead sure that the alternative you know could lead to the end of of your race and your way of life um obviously that's high stakes you know and uh it's just like i think like the fact that they've done such a good job of playing with putting both of them in in the role of either the the one who's maybe correct or the one who's wrong too like shows how much malleability there is between their their points and that like Really, it, is, it just comes down to like an ideological difference, you know, of, of, of where do you land on like is violence justified uh, in, in defending yourself, you know, um, or, or, or are you supposed to take the high road? And like, what does that even mean?
1: It's, it's even broader than that. It, it's, it's the very nature of an oppressed people is the nature of, of how do you improve your socioeconomic standing and your your, your actual life. And it's, it's a problem that every culture comes to, whether it's someone like Gandhi in, in India with the uh, uh, effectively apartheid culture in India during British occupation or, or what's been happening in the United States, particularly during the segregation period uh, post-Civil uh, War, where it's a, it's, it's a point of nonviolent revolution versus revolution at any, uh, by any means. And I think if you feel like an oppressed individual in your society, that debate will always be timeless because it's something that has been affecting any society and any culture for thousands of years
0: yeah i I think that's a that's a fantastic pick for sure.
2: <laughs> I legitimately wrote a paper about it for a sociology class in college because I've always been, just been so into their dynamic,
1: yeah and to me that's what made the fox x-men movies so good the good ones is the, the 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 focus on magneto versus
2: xavier and they just nailed it you know they did such a good job of capturing that dynamic and then adding things to it as well you know like really kind of like drawing um that like mlk uh um malcolm, malcolm, x. X. malcolm, yeah, malcolm x thank you um yeah like that kind of dichotomy between them right like it, they they did a really good job with that, and like they couldn't have had two better actors either, you know, to work with that material. Um, that I think is really the crowning achievement of that original series for sure. Absolutely.
1: Uh, as for me, Kenneth Morrison, who's back on the podcast <laughs> for a long time after a long absence. Grant, so, <laughs> welcome back, Grant. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone finds you well. I've been I've been working on my sigils. I'm coming back on Green Lantern, so that was one of my sigils that were truly activated. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. for me, because I can answer this question quite honestly from personal experience, the greatest strife and struggle in comic books is that between the writer and the editor. It's a constant. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a const- kale. it's a constant nonstop struggle and trying to achieve art versus trying to sell books. It's it's as old as Batman or Superman. It's just the endless debate, and there's nothing quite like it. So, of me, the editor versus the writer—that's the true divide.
0: Cool, thanks, Grant, for <laughs> that.
1: Take care, everyone. I
0: hope
2: you enjoy the rest of your show. Bye, Grant. What a nice guy! Holy shit, <laughs> dude! I mean, we we I, we should have thanked him for Gothic. You know, like we just did that book club. You know, we were really, really like we loved his work. Can never get enough of Grant on the show. He's
1: already poofed out of here. With some magic smoke.
0: <laughs> so what's your answer?
1: Oh, my answer. Yeah, I mean, Grant gave a really good answer. Uh-
4: <laughs> oh, no. <laughs>
0: Pete just smacked his phone. Or his uh, camera, rather. Just
1: pulled my webcam off. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what happened. I think he had an aneurysm or something. I'm looking at my bookshelf to bail me out with an actual uh, no answer. <laughs> Um, I guess there's two thoughts I had. Uh, the first was Hellboy and Rasputin. Uh, just be, yeah, because my thinking was, uh, I like, I like the contrast, I guess, between Hellboy, who's supposed to be this arbiter of, uh, basically, uh, reality's destruction. Uh, he's the spawn from Hell, brought to Earth by Rasputin inadvertently raised by uh American scientists and soldiers. Uh, and it's like that eternal conflict of trying to overcome your destiny. It's that Luke Skywalker thing where your seeming destiny is to join your father and bring destruction to everything kind of thing, but having to overcome that. And I think that's a really good that's not like a necessarily deep, you know, ideological uh, conflict, but it's a relatable conflict of of trying to avoid the sins of the father. That is really relatable in a lot of fiction. Uh, yeah, from a from a undead Russian monk and a spawn from hell. Uh, and then the other one, I think. I'd be remiss to not mention, of course, would be Superman and, and Lex Luthor, right? That Here uh, we go. <laughs> I mean, say no more. It's uh, you have, If you can listen to the fucking All-Star Superman episode of our book club, to go into great detail about the contrast between t- both of them, but like to put it simply, you have a man who wants to be a god and a god who wants to be a man. And it shows how all of us, even with... Even the greatest of us can, like, physically, can be the most human, and how it's not a matter of how strong you are; it's about how much compassion you have, that kind of thing. It's good. It's a good one, folks.
2: Absolutely.
0: Thanks, I mean, Harris. Yeah, it's
2: the gold standard, man.
1: Yeah.
0: <clears throat> Appreciate you writing in. Uh, it was awesome hanging out with you a couple days ago. Um, Did you guys talk about Pete? Uh
1: no, no, Pete, I'm sorry to up. hear that. That's really su- that's really surprising. Yeah. <laughs> Pete's also a narcissist now, guys. <laughs> now? Well. <laughs> <wow>.
4: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so let's jump into our pals pulls here. Uh from Marco, we've got Sandman Universe number one.
3: Hell yeah. Uh Gaiman's coming back. Uh, I'm pumped for this. Matt Lopez is on Colors, who I recently been following. Uh, he's really, really, really good. Um, creeping up there to be one of my favorites, actually. Um, and yeah, I'm just excited to see this world. Continue to explore it. Uh, I'm a huge fan of Sandman and uh, Gaiman, so yeah. Tight.
0: Is this the start of the of his sort of pop up y- imprint?
3: Yeah, yeah. This is gonna be like the first, uh, like stepping stone into the rest of the universe. Yeah, I think there's magic books coming out too potentially later. Um, outside of just Sandman stuff.
0: Yeah.
2: Awesome. That's really cool.
0: And then you also chose Black Badge number one.
3: Yeah. Uh. So Black Badge is by uh, Matt Kent and Tyler Jenkins, who are also writing, um, Grass Kings. You're a big Matt Kent guy, uh, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, uh, honestly, it's more so for for Jenkins' art. Huh. He does a lot of watercolors and like inks. Um, but uh, yeah, so it's it's uh, it's more so for Jenkins' art that I get pulled in. Matt's a he's a really good writer, um, and the team they have a really good dynamic. So I enjoy. Yeah, you know, I I enjoy all of their stuff, and they're coming out with this new book about uh some kids in a sort of supernatural like camping kind of ground situation right. this is the one yeah. that yeah yeah, yeah. We um, this. and so yeah i'm super pumped also being published by what's, Boom.
2: what's the name of it again
3: black badge
2: black badge okay yeah yeah I do you remember that
3: so definitely go pick it up uh hillary jenkins who is uh his wife is also doing some art on this
2: cool oh cool you had me at Spooky Comer. Oh, that sounded bad. Spooky Summer Camp Story, not Comer <laughs> Samp. <laughs> huh.
0: From Phil, we've got Peter David's Aquaman Trade, Volume 2.
1: Yeah, so I didn't even know Volume 1 came out, but, like, I was thinking about it. To me, this is the best Aquaman run ever published, and there's been a. a Few good ones. There was a decent one in like two thousand four. I can't remember who wrote it at the top of my head, excuse me.
3: Is that Vage?
1: maybe. Um
3: Did he have a magic hand? A yes. hand? Yeah, it was yes, a water I mean, hand. Beach, beach, beach.
1: It was a pretty good run. And then that there was, pretty was good. there was the uh, Jeff Jones run, uh, most recently before the Dan Abnett run, which was also pretty good. Um, but this is the gold standard. And it had me thinking if there was a book from the nineties that had not been a uh, Uh, published as an omnibus Peter David's Aquaman would be a really good candidate Um, because as it is I haven't read that book in 12 years and with a movie coming out that everyone's excited to see starring WWE superstar Roman Reigns (laughs) um, I think this is a good one and and for people that are getting uh, perhaps interested in seeing that movie don't know why uh, that would be a good book to read awesome
0: uh, Wait, are you saying you're not excited for Aquaman?
1: I'm super excited! How many times can you see Aquaman spear Black Manta and then not win?
0: Okay.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: so, for me, I chose Fantastic Four, number one. This is the most monumental release of right. the week, for sure. Uh, and one of the most exciting things in my opinion that's happening this year in comics and uh, I I am blown away by the fact that this is finally happening Dan Slott, Sarah Pacelli that's a great team Uh, and I think that together they can really knock it out of the park and do something worthy of the Fantastic Foursome Uh, the story is that they're searching for their kids Reed and Sue are, somehow they Lost them while they were out in space creating universes, so it should be interesting to see where we find Reed and Sue. We don't know exactly what they're going to be like, and obviously they're in desperation trying to find their kids. I have been looking forward to this for a really, really long time, so I cannot wait to finally have this in my hands.
1: How many years had it been between the last issue of Fantastic Four Or FF, it might have been at the time, uh, and now or future Foundation, maybe whatever. Point is, when's the last time? I believe
0: that the Fantastic Four ended in 2015.
1: So it's been three years, folks. Three years. That's a long time. Marcos making it not sound like a long time, but it's a long time.
3: Well, I I thought it was gonna be. I thought it was kind of gonna be longer, uh, because it would be like I don't remember. Uh, picking up any or seeing any Fantastic Four books on the shelf um, well you always
2: avoid the Marvel section so
3: that's true you're not wrong
2: <clears throat> yeah I was gonna say like my guess was like 2014 you know like that's the, it feels like it's been forever um, but yeah uh, this this is really cool are, are we gonna cover this one next week on the show I hope to let's fucking let's do, do it, it. make yeah, I'm Pete done. Reno I'm our Dan Slott book
3: Hey, let's go, baby.
2: There's nothing I like more than embarrassingly uh, going back on my publicly made opinions. So,
1: yeah, because you're a narcissist now. So speaking of Pete having to go back on his opinions,
0: <laughs> we are about to talk about the second trailer for Venom. And now I'm not going the back. on Pete will have to admit that the movie looks
1: good.
2: No way, Pete uh no you, you got
1: 30 seconds to redact everything
2: you've said the last six months. <laughs> on. uh yeah no this is this is the the part of the show where pete doubles down on his strongly held opinions oh, about this boy. dumpster fire looking movie
3: you, know, I'm what sorry, pete, I you just, know what pete no no pete i'm taking that bet oh what? i like this
2: oh. what's the bet you're, taking the, you're bet? taking the bet that i'm gonna go back on my word
3: no, that I that I, I'm gonna double down with you. This this made this did not turn me. This turned me off. Oh,
2: what stitch. is up, baby? Welcome to the right side of history, Marco. There you go. Um, straight up, I'll do a pizza bet with you guys. Though, let's do that. <laughs> I can't eat pizza. Fucking- so. <laughs> there <you go>. Fuck. <laughs>
3: and that's homicide.
2: Sean Sean, Sean gets a comic book. Phil gets a pizza. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, no, I, I, this trailer did not turn me on. Um, It looks like more of all of the things that I don't like about this movie so far. Like, I, I think it looks like a very, it looks like a early 2000 superhero movie with, like, better effects. You know, like, Venom looks cool. I'll give you that. Um, what if these eyes? That was one of the funniest things I've seen on the internet. This, Go if you guys on. haven't seen it, there's a great Photoshop going around right now of what if Venom basically had like big cartoon eyes, and it's either terrifying or adorable depending on where you fall on the spectrum. So I could
0: only look at that for exactly one second. It was really <laughs>
2: disgusting. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, like. The dialogue, the, the tone and everything, like, it still all feels off and weird to me. Um, we got confirmation of, uh, the, the kind of multi-symbiote storyline that we talked about last time that we discussed Venom. And, um, I still feel the same way about that. That feels like a really weird thing for them to be doing as, like, their first mission as Venom together. And, like, there's this weird dissonance of he's like, we can't hurt anybody. But then he's also like threatening to eat people and stuff. And it's just like, <laughs> I don't know, man. Like, I just I don't know. And like, I, I admitted this last time, like, I'm I know I'm down on this movie. So like, you it, it could be <laughs> uh, coloring my opinion because I just I I don't I haven't liked it and I don't want to like it. But there's nothing about this that, like, makes me feel like my concerns are at all unfounded. And the fact that Marco saw it and had the same reaction as me um, definitely reinforces my opinions because he, he definitely gets turned off by that same kind of shit. So Marco also doesn't like Venom
3: or I don't doesn't know Venom.
2: Venom. Marco doesn't know or like anything,
0: though. Like, <laughs> and, and, that has, and that has colored his opinions about many things on this
3: show. It has. Now. (laughs) You are not not incorrect.
0: Now, I'm going to say this.
1: That's the funniest fucking thing I've ever heard on this show.
0: (laughs) Venom, right, is the star of the show, right? And he looks awesome. I think Venom looks fantastic. This is such a step above what they gave us in Spider-Man 3 and that alone makes me really excited. Spider-Man 3's Venom was garbage. This is hot fire. I don't care that he doesn't have the white spider. It does it wouldn't it would a- anger me if he did. So because he how would he have gotten that he hasn't interacted. With it Spider-Man doesn't yet. make any
2: fucking sense. Why
0: not? Uh, I don't know, man. I think a lot of this makes sense. Yeah, I uh, agree. Uh Venom looks great. He sa- I think he sounds fantastic. The trailers don't do his voice justice on your computer. When you see it uh, in theater, he sounds awesome. It's very loud, very creepy. What I also really appreciate is, that, is his uh, tone. Venomous is like this. He's, he, uh, at least the, when the symbiote and Brock are together, they're sadistic. It's horrifying. It's creepy, but it's also kind of funny. That the, the, They nailed that tone. Now, the dialogue you know your mileage may vary i've seen some people who really love the things that venom says i've seen some people who don't care for it i'm somewhere in the middle i definitely laughed but i can see how this could be annoying for two hours uh we'll see uh i think i have no problem with the fact that that the other symbiotes are in the movie i love the fact that they have riot i can't wait to see the other ones i hope they put scream in here because i love her as well um so visually speaking, I think this movie looks great. I think Venom seems great. What I don't like is Tom Hardy's accent. What the hell yep. is he doing? It's so bad. Stupid. He
1: sounds. It's weird. one of the worst American accents
2: Listen, I've ever heard,
1: guys. When you go to California like I did, it changes you. It changes <laughs> your
2: accent. You just don't. You haven't been there. You just don't know. I'm. I'm. Uh, I'm Eddie. I'm Eddie Brock. I'm a, I'm a reporter. Yeah,
0: it's like a very strange okay. New York kind of thing, but it's not at the same time. It's just very bizarre. It's it sounds
2: like someone doing a New York accent, right. not like, like actually. It. Yeah, right. Like not. Oh shit! This guy isn't from New York. You know, like, like it's like I don't know if this like was the same way for you, Sean, but I remember like the first time that I learned that um, Lauren Cohen. From The Walking Dead, the woman who plays Maggie, when I found out she was British, I was like, what the fuck?
4: <laughs> it's yeah.
2: it like her accent is really surprisingly good. Like, I figured she was an American doing a Southern accent, not a British person nailing a Southern accent. Um, so yeah, like, it, this just did not do it for me. Uh, my, my one complaint visually, and it's not even like a complaint, it's more just like, I would have loved to have seen this. Uh, cause like, it's cool that they're like doing a more horror vibe. With this movie, like, I think that works for Venom. Um, but I was thinking... I was talking about it with a friend of mine about what he would look like if he was in the MCU, and it's, like, he'd probably be more blue. Like, I wish he had some of those... That, like, dark blue that, like, he had in the 90s, uh, you know? yeah. Like, I love that like look. Like, on the and, show like, and stuff? I, yeah, yeah. And, like, in, like, MVC uh, 2 you know? Like, it's still very, like, creepy, but, like, it had that more, like, kind of, like, hyper, you know... Um, Hyper violet, kind of, you know, like intense blue. That um, I wish, I wish there was pepperings of that a little bit.
0: I always interpreted that blue as, and this is probably completely just my read, as a result of uh, the symbiote having interacted with Spider Man and kind of like throwing that in there. And again, given that he hasn't interacted with Spider Man at all, I don't want to see any influence in that in that vein. I really hope he doesn't have webbing because that would be dumb uh the only other thing i wanted to say and this is trailer specific is that this trailer was cut sort of bad dialogue wise and this is this is something that a lot of old trailers used to do and i'm not sure why they couldn't have gotten around this but they cut the dialogue in such a way that it's so obvious that like a character will be talking and not the entire time they're talking, they're not talking about the same thing. It's it's dialogue from different scenes spliced together, and it sounds awful at certain points. Riz med's character is talking, and it's clear to me he's not talking about the same thing the entire time. They do it with Tom Hardy as well. I hate that.
3: Yeah, I, I think I think that's what it was for me. Like it was the it was the dialogue, and it was the way the the chiller was cut. I thought the the visuals were pretty cool. Like he he looks. He looks cool. The way they sort of split the uh, the like the face, like, like that was cool stuff. Um, but it was the dialogue. It was like I have to sit through an hour and a half or two hours of that kind of an accent with that kind of acting. It was just I, I'm not necessarily pumped for that. Uh, just from like a film perspective, and then because I don't know Venom necessarily, I, I don't know his mannerisms and his the way the way that he his character supposed to. Be acting, but if that is the way that he is being portrayed and it is somewhat accurate, Sean, then I mean that's that's pretty cool to introduce me to that character in that sort of way versus adapting him in a different way uh, outside of the uh, as you would outside of uh, the comics and uh the last like one of the last scenes where it's Venom fighting another symbiote, I was like, "Fuck this shit!" I saw it. I was like, "Ah." fucking bullshit my man yeah i i he's like, ripping off his like his head and then it pulls out to the other guy and then it's like it's the, the one dude and it was like oh you're just that's stupid
0: we were gonna get it eventually whether it was riot and that crew or carnage you're gonna you're gonna see venom fight another symbiote. so that's ugh. not like if you if you if it's you like don't iron like- man
3: fights another iron man it's like ah <sighs>
2: That <laughs> yeah, I mean, but that's just what happens. That's that's. But venom. like, I can I can fuck with it when it's carnage. But like, whatever, it's fine. We'll hey, see what there's happens. A, there's a story ripped straight from the comics.
1: I'm Pete and Bessie. I like Venom more for my '90s video game. Why can't he be more like that? Make my Marvel a pepper pepper pepper. Notice me, send
2: Listen. I didn't know that we. I didn't know we invited your brother on the show, Phil.
3: Oh sh- shit! Sean, sh- sh-
2: for a second, uh, Sean, sh- when does this movie come out again? It's October. It, it comes out October fifth.
1: It's the it's the it's the mayor of shit Hill. <laughs> that would be you.
0: Uh, we we've talked about the James Gunn situation quite a bit on this show. Oh yeah, Phil, you haven't had the chance to chime in. I I I want to get your feedback. Before that, I do want to read uh, an open letter that the Guardians cast uh, put together and actually signed. Um, It's signed by all the principal characters from the Guardians films. Uh, and It's very heartfelt, so here it is. To our fans and friends, we fully support James Gunn. We were all shocked by his abrupt firing last week and have intentionally waited these 10 days to respond in order to think, pray, listen, and discuss. In that time, we've been encouraged by the outpouring of support from fans and members of the media who wish to see James reinstated as director of Volume 3, as well as discouraged by those who so easily duped into believing the many outlandish conspiracy theories surrounding him. Being in the Guardians of the Galaxy movies has been a great honor in each of our lives. We cannot let this moment pass without expressing our love, support, and gratitude for James. We are not here to defend his jokes of many years ago, but rather to share our experiences, having spent many years together on set making Guardians of the Galaxy 1 and 2. The character he has shown in the wake of his firing is consistent with the man he was on set every day, and his apology, now and from years ago, when first addressing these remarks, we believe is from the heart our heart we all know trust and love in cast in casting each of us to help him tell the story of misfits who find redemption he changed our lives forever we believe the theme of redemption has never been more relevant than now each of us looks forward to working with our friend james again in the future his story isn't over not by a long shot There is little due process in the court of public opinion. James is likely not the last good person to be put on trial. Given the growing political divide in this country, it's safe to say instances like this will continue. Although we hope Americans from across the political spectrum can ease up on the character assassinations and stop weaponizing mob mentality. It is our hope that what has transpired can serve as an example for all of us to realize the enormous responsibility we have to ourselves... And to each other regarding the use of our written words when we etch them in digital stone, that we as a society may learn from this experience, and in the future we'll think twice before we decide what we want to express, and in so learning, perhaps can harness this capability to heal, to help and heal instead of hurt each other. Thank you for taking the time to read our words, and then it's signed by everybody. So. That is a huge declaration on their part to come out in defense of this guy. I think that uh, it's it's especially important that they did this. Regardless of how you feel about what happened, it's important that they did this because not everybody agrees that he should not have been fired. So for them to be willing to risk the public's perception of them because they're now defending this goes to show how strongly they believe that they're right and that he should be reinstated, and that he is a good person. And I don't know James Gunn, but they do. And if they're saying that he's this good of a guy, and that they never had a problem with him on set in any way that he was completely respectful, when we know that a lot of directors are disgusting on set, like Brett Ratner and others, for him to have this kind of character that these people who have no reason To defend him, he's fired. They don't have to defend him. For them to come out and do this, that shows that we're missing something. The people who are so
2: vehemently against him are missing something. Yeah, man, and I I totally agree with that. And I think, like, for me, that was the impression I got from the first time that Batista uh, tweeted you yeah. know, that it was like the day it happened, he was like, this is not OK. Like, he's a great guy. He's a compassionate person. And I'm like, really not cool with the fact that he got fired. It's like, you know, it's one thing to like the director that you worked with or to like a person who you work with. But like for you to immediately stick your neck out and be like, it's bullshit that you're attacking him is like that that, that heat could have immediately gotten turned on him. You know, and like people could have been drudging up stuff from from his past and now all of their pasts, you know, and I'm sure that's going to happen. Um, and yeah, I think you're right. It speaks volumes about what they think of James as a person, you know, and, and of of the, the quality of his character. And not for nothing. I mean, like, I, I get it when it comes to specifically uh, Batista and uh, and um, Chris Pratt, like James Gunn made them movie stars. Yep, absolutely. Um, So, like, aside from them liking him as a person, like, he did a lot for them in their – like, Chris Pratt wouldn't be a top-earning movie star today if it wasn't for the fact that James Gunn gave him a shot.
3: Yep. He'd be Andy.
2: And, like, Parks and Rec is my favorite fucking show, but he was certainly not what he – like, you know, he's a fucking household name today. He used to be the chubby guy from Parks and Rec, you know? Um, and like, that's all cause James Gunn saw the potential in him. And like, I totally understand why they would want to go to a bet, go to bat for somebody like that. But the fact that, you know, all these other people who don't need him and don't owe him anything in that way also were willing to go and put their, their neck out on the line and say that they, that they don't think what's happening to him is right is really, uh, it's, I think it speaks a lot about, about how great it must be to work with the guy.
0: Phil, what was your take on this whole thing, man?
2: Uh,
1: Man, I don't know. (laughs) Uh, Cool. uh, Yeah. (laughs) Please (laughs) tell me you have more than that.
2: You've had three weeks to think about
1: this. (laughs) People have been, like, talking to me about it, and, like, it's a weird one. He made a lot of really fucked up jokes. Um, I obviously the question I guess would be if there is something beyond the jokes, but there's no evidence of that, obviously. Um, and he's insisted to that as well. Um, I don't like, I can firmly say I don't like the fact that he was fired on the grounds that a conservative talking head basically uh, campaigned to have him fired. As, like, a political I don't even
2: Yeah, it's like, I don't even uh, think it's fair to even just call the guy a conservative. Talk- like, he's a, like... He's like a super, super crazy right-wing conspiracy nut guy. Like, he was the one who pushed the whole Pizzagate thing. Like, he's he's now trying to connect James Gunn to a conspiracy theory he started about a ring of Hollywood pedophiles. And he's trying to discredit anybody who's, like, a liberal who's publicly an opponent of Trump. Like, he's calling Pat Oswald a, a child molester now and stuff. And, you know, it's like, this guy's a fucking piece of garbage. He literally like he ha- he has a tweet that people have been circling around where he said that it's impossible to date rape somebody. Yeah, you know, no, like. I know, I know. It's, it's, he
1: he's slung so much shit, but his shit stinks the worst, as it were. Uh, he's the real mayor of shit town. Um, with regard to James Gunn, though, I uh, my my inclination is that. It was a long time ago, and he made really inappropriate comments and jokes, don't get me wrong, but there's two parts of that. One, I think it was a different climate in 2009, and in regard that this really, uh, this very, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, Irreverent humor was more popular. Uh, And... He's apologized since then, and I guess for me, for something like that, when can you really tender and accept a apology? For some, for some things, obviously, it's a little more difficult. If you're someone like uh, uh, that fucking producer who raped
2: a ton of women. Harvey Weinstein.
1: For Harvey Weinstein, it's a little, an apology, a simple apology is not, it's kind of, it seems kind of empty, right? But that's a lot more heinous than, than making a lot of inappropriate jokes about pedophilia. Uh, But again, I, it's, it's a weird, it's a weird, spectrum of bad that I don't want to really try to like measure um do I think he should have been fired probably not uh do I defend what he said no I don't know the whole like the, the, the stuff like this It just bums me out you know so like I haven't really, I haven't really developed like a full cog- cognitive thought on it, just because like I just haven't thought about it that much, because it's more like, man, this sucks. Uh, and I mean, I I do agree with the 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 meat of that, where it's like in the court of public perception, there is no due process, and uh, that kind of in- intrinsically goes against my my kind of background of thinking that we should give everyone the benefit of the doubt. Which is kind of how our legal system is supposed to work in the United States. There's a famous judge in Britain named uh from from hundreds of years ago that we based our legal system on named uh Judge Blackstone, who said something to the effect of that he would rather let uh a hundred guilty a lot of a lot of bad people go free, a hundred people go bad people go free, they convict, then falsely convict one innocent person. Which is like the, supposed to be what the basis of our legal system is based on. Because of how muddy the actual conviction of someone can be. And I think there's truth in that. And when it comes to uh, public, when it comes to the public outcry of the defamation of celebrities right now, you don't have that due process. But, it's 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 complicated and it's muddy and in cases like someone like Bill Cosby how do you defend someone like that because and obviously he, he got justice served uh but you get my point
0: yeah it's different bill uh bill cosby did something actionable we yeah. know that he did something uh and you can there are plenty of arguments that people have tried to make defending him whatever doesn't matter we, he's in prison, and he did something. He did something enough to go to jail. Or at least he was... He was people, convicted. He was convicted. That's what it is. James Gunn has been convicted by
2: the public. Yeah. And that's BS. And Yeah, like, it would be one thing if people had come out after this and been like, yeah, James Gunn assaulted me. But, like, they didn't. And, I, like, a, a joke is a joke is not an action. And I think, like, it's really... It sets a dangerous precedent to say that, like, jokes that age poorly are reflective of your character 10 to 8 years later. You know, it's like, it's stupid. You know, it's like you said, like, the time was different. And and frankly, like, the, a lot of the stuff that he said was fucking heinous. Sure. But it's like, but it, the, to me, like. Personally, it's not offensive because it's it's clearly he's just he's trying to be a provocateur. He's trying to say things to get a rise out of people. And it's like, I don't think that that's funny or that that's a thing I want to defend. But I also don't think that that makes him a terrible person.
0: Listen, in the 80s, Eddie Murphy was making uh, stand up comedy specials using the F word for gay people. Right. Okay, and he was using it left, right and center. And if he did that same thing today, people would be calling for his head. In the '80s, that made him the greatest comedian of all time.
1: Uh, he it is what it is. He subsequently apologized for it, saying it was regrettable, and he like, you know, is ashamed of it now. I mean, it's been well, brought to yeah, his attention. because he,
2: because he fucking grew and changed, and it's like people need to be allowed to do that. Like you, you can't hold people accountable. For positions that they held 10 years ago when they've already apologized and it's not even like James Gunn said anything like fucking like like he didn't say anything that was fucking pro like Nambla like he was making fucking jokes you know it's like uh, it, there it, it's just it's such a chasm of difference between what he did at least in my mind and a lot of the parallels people are trying to draw I think one of them cl- like people were trying to draw a line between this and like what Roseanne did. And it's like, no, because she did that right now today. If James Gunn did this right now today, he should be fired. But guess what? He didn't. It was 2008. It was a different time, man. We didn't even all have iPhones yet.
0: <laughs> there's There's been a rumor going around that X-Men, Dark Phoenix, and The New Mutants were canceled. And I didn't report on it because I thought that was so weird. and Like, people, pe- that people would even believe that, that was the case. Uh, and as it turns out, it's not the case. Uh, X-Men, Dark Phoenix, and the New Mutants are absolutely not canceled. Uh, so if you were sad about that, don't be. They're still coming out. They're coming out when they're when they're supposed to. Granted, these are the um, release, dates, release dates they've been given since being pushed back several times. Dark Phoenix is coming out on February 14th, 2019. And the New Mutants is coming out almost exactly one year from now on August 2nd. Of 2019, so we'll see how those are. Both, by the way, I just want to point out both of those movies are supposed to have been out already.
2: I find that hilarious. It's crazy, isn't? Isn't Phoenix supposed to have been out twice over by now too? Like, didn't expect both, get of, both twice? of them.
0: Both of them. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah. Uh, I I'm still not convinced these movies are coming out. I I think there's a good chance they got delayed, like tentatively, seeing how the deal goes, and I wonder if they get squashed. Now that the deal is done.
0: Well, that's the reason why I included this is because I'm wondering now that we know that the deal is happening and that it's going to be finalized at some point in 2019 and take, you know, take effect some at some point in 2019. How does that recontextualize these movies, if at all?
2: I think it's a good chance they don't come out. Uh, I think there's a good chance that they come out on like a Netflix or some other platform instead because um, like they made them right like they want they're gonna want to see some kind of a return on that investment but like maybe not you know it's like it's not unheard of for stuff to get shelved uh especially with new mutants where they were like we're gonna reshoot half of it it's like well maybe don't you know um i i, I think that honestly makes a lot of sense and uh it's just it's just funny i did want to just rewind back because uh <laughs> I thought it was really funny how you introduced this topic, And You're like, oh, that's why I wanted to bring it up. I thought you just wanted to bring it up because you're like, well, I didn't report on this rumor because it was obviously bullshit. And I just wanted to be like, what's up? Sup? Like you? Like you're just like, what's up? I knew it. Oh, yeah.
0: I mean, <laughs> you know, it's not, it's not a point to brag necessarily, but it's like, come on, man. You know, like... You think, you think that these movies are going to quietly just go away? Multi-million dollar investments they're just going to cancel them quietly? Poof. That's not going to happen. <laughs> that, <are laughs> already, like that they've already filmed? It's ridiculous.
1: Uh, Phil, what do you think, man? Do you think these movies come out? <sighs> yeah. Uh, they'll find the light of the day eventually. Um, now, whether or not they come out in theaters is another question. But I think these will come out. There's too much. I agree. We talked about this before when we talked about the setbacks. But I think too much has been done. Too much money has been spent for these films not to find some form of release.
2: Um, I I think that's definitely true about Phoenix. I don't know about New Mutants.
1: I think Phoenix will definitely get a theatrical release. I think New Mutants might come out on a streaming platform or something. But they could also get a theatrical release for all we know. But I think they both see the light of day. And, um, there'll be interesting nails in the coffin of Fox's Marvel films. Yeah. Um, that, I think, I
0: think it's interesting that that run is ending on these two movies. I, I I wonder. Because Dark Phoenix was supposed to be a two parter. Right. Mm -hmm. I wonder if it functions as a solo film and if the upcoming reshoots will be used to address that.
1: I can't imagine it'll be very good with the precedent
2: of Justice League. How fucking funny would it be if they just end the Fox X Men franchise on a cliffhanger? Like,
3: like, yeah, whatever. Shit. It's fucking over. You'll never get to see it now. (laughs)
1: <laughs> that that oh that you know that you that would do it's like all those young justice fans that the second season of that show ended with I I, I think it was um uh, I I it's been a, it's been a long time since I watched the show but uh uh Vandal Savage gave some kind of thing to Dark Side and that's how the show ended with like the reveal the reveal that Dark Side is here uh and that made like the fucking uh nerds on the internet like lose their shit like ah, the show just got cancelled and there's dark side. I think it'd be a similar thing where it's like there's some big ass, you know, Mr. Sinisters at the end of fucking Phoenix. Everyone's like Mr. Sinister
0: Yeah, I, I, I really could see a scenario like that, and uh it would it would suck, but it would be I, I guess, like Pete said, kind of a fitting end. It's just bullshit. Like, I, I want to just see the Phoenix storyline go off without a hitch one time, and you know, I don't really want to see Marvel go that go to that well straight away, just because every trilogy of these films or whatever has done the same thing. So I'd like to see them not do that. I feel but like, you know they're going to do it. There, eventually. there
2: are other X Men storylines. I Dozens.
1: Feel like, I feel like Disney want to do it. Ever? At least, like, in the next ten years.
2: Yeah, no, I, I I, think I think you're right, Phil. Like, I think they'll take a similar tact that they did with Spider-Man, where it's like... Yeah, I think so. There's a lot of other directions to go other than the fucking Green Goblin. You know, it's like, we don't have to start there. I we will get there eventually. Sure.
1: I don't even think they'll ever do the Green Goblin.
2: Oh, come on. No, because... I think they will... I, Somebody, somebody's
1: losing like the ability to use spider-man after what uh the next avengers the next spider-man movie oh you mean marvel is yeah,
2: yeah
0: marvel is the you're right about that so if they never if if they never well they
2: have to renegotiate right they not to re-negotiate. Outright which them. they will there's so no fucking if, way that that's not gonna happen well Ooh. who knows
1: if, if venom and craven or something do really well they might think they have leverage now i don't think it's gonna happen We'll see, Pete, when you're at fucking New York Comic Con singing <laughs> the
0: praises of Venom. So, yeah. Uh, we'll, it remains to be seen what's going to happen with those movies, but it's it's interesting to say the least. Uh, the Chilling Sub- uh, Adventures of Sabrina is coming to Netflix, and it has a release date. It's got Let's the, go, fam. The release date of October 26, which is similar to the Stranger Things slot. Uh, it's the Friday before Halloween, so... I think that's a perfectly appropriate time uh, for this to come out. It's a 10-episode series that stars Kiernan Shipka and uh, imagines the origin and adventures of Sabrina the Teenage Witch as a dark coming-of-age story that traffics in horror, the occult, and, of course, witchcraft. Tonally in the vein of Rosemary's Baby and the Exorcist, the adaptation... Find Sabrina wrestling to reconcile her dual nature, half witch, half mortal, with, while standing against the evil forces that threaten her, her family, and the daylight world humans inhabit.
1: I believe I believe only the second season of Stranger Things released before Halloween. I think the first season was a summer release. Um, yeah, uh, you're right. Too. Yeah. Um... My initial thought on this show with before hearing that was like, oh, this sounds like a spiritual successor to the Riverdale review with Kale, uh nope. Pete and Marco. But upon hearing that, that's fucking crazy. Totally similar to Rosemary's baby? What the fuck? Phil, are you gonna join us on the Greendale review? I don't know what the, the Greendale Review, I don't know what that is.
2: <laughs> well, Greendale is that's where that's where Sabrina lives.
3: Oh right next to Riverdale. Is that true? Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Oh shit. These are facts.
3: Fuck. Yeah, it's uh, it's based off of uh, the Chilling uh, Adventures of Sabrina. Right. The Rob uh, was it Roberto Aguirre something, and then I, so I'm awesome. forgetting the art, I'm forgetting the artist's name. Um, but yeah, it that book is uh amazing and filled with so much fucked up satanic shit. It's it's really good.
1: Fill <laughs> like so much fucked up satanic shit. I did see Hereditary.
2: Um, like all good Catholic boys, Phil's ha- Phil has an obsession with the devil. <laughs> uh, that sounds really
1: interesting, guys. I got to tell you, uh, horror is my jam. Um, Let's watch it. <laughs> yeah, I'll
0: I'm really it, excited for this.
2: I'll give it a shot. You're gonna watch it too, Sean?
0: I am gonna watch this. I is there a trailer woo! or anything? There's no trailer. No. There's nice. no, nothing. It's so close to October. They haven't shown
1: shit yet. That's dude. how
0: Netflix rolls. But so
1: I think I think there was a Stranger Things trailer at this time last year.
2: That's how Netflix rolls. But that's just yeah. that, but okay. <laughs> I mean, I honestly I think that like I think it's because development like took a long time. Like I know like even a couple months ago, like one of the last things I remember reporting on when I was still doing the news desk at CBR was that they were like making casting announcements still. You know, so it's like I think. I think they probably just started shooting not that long ago. They probably don't have a lot of finalized footage yet.
1: So, shit, this might drop around the same time as the third season of Daredevil, which is going to be a clusterfuck for me in time management.
2: <laughs> I doubt they're going to be on top of each other.
0: Daredevil, you know? Daredevil is not coming out at, until at least October because uh, Iron Fist is September. That, well, fucking Iron mind, Fist that puts, in
1: September?
0: Yeah. Ah. In my mind, that puts Daredevil in, a no, in November.
1: Uh, oh, shit. That's where Kale is. He's filming.
0: So Dan Didio and Jim Lee have been making the rounds recently. They've done a bunch of different interviews. And uh, they've been making some really interesting statements about various different things, including where the industry is going. And how DC intends to be at the forefront of the comic book industry going forward. They did an an interview with ICV2 that uh, was really good and very interesting. In particular, Dan DiDio talked about a worry of oversaturation in the market. So, for context, uh, between 2016 and 2017 we saw a 6.7 drop in year-to-year sales, overall in comics. And Didio responded to that with the following. My fear is that there's probably an oversaturation of product. If you're looking at the numbers, you're looking at at 400 new periodicals a month. I can't even imagine the number of collections that come out a month. It's overwhelming. If you're looking at the expansion of the market... We keep on seeing new companies being introduced every day. They seem to be coming out with a much stronger amount of content right coming out of the gate. It's not a slow buildup. These guys are coming out on the ground running. I think that's probably adding to that burden onto the retailers, not just the product line that we do. Like we said, we're pretty consistent with what we put out. But there's just this constant introduction of new material and new companies that they're constantly having to choose from. So he said more stuff. We'll talk about some of that. Uh, I found that to be fascinating because we've talked about this, obviously, on the show plenty. So it's interesting to hear Dan Didio comment in particular on the fact that these new companies that are popping up every second may potentially be having a negative impact on overall business. Marco, why don't you tell us what your thoughts are we said we're going to talk about this earlier you seem to have a lot of points you wanted to make so um there's more to say but why don't you jump in and get a head start
3: uh yeah it sounds like um they're sort of afraid of or at least dc sort of afraid of oversaturation to affect their sales uh as well largely um because that does obviously cut into their bottom line, knowing that they have a set number of releases a month and they have their constant line of, uh, of products. Um, but there probably is some validity to that. I mean, there's always, you know, outside of just the the big two, which make up what the 80%, there's like 100 other publishers that make up the remaining five or whatever. It, it, it definitely affects the, the market, I think. Um, but... I don't know that it necessarily affects the the sales in that sort of way. I, I think that it definitely affects individual publisher sales, but overall, even though there was that dip in comics reading, um, that six percent dip, I don't know that that's necessarily attributed to the expansion of more uh, to the expansion of smaller publishers, because you would think that they'd be reading more. Uh, I think maybe that's there's there's something else at play with terms of the audiences that that they're that they're hitting and uh, which people are receptive to the books but not necessarily because there are so many. Um, and I think the the other line the other thing I was gonna mention based off of Harris's comment was that um, it was sort of something similar to what you had said John that they, having the comics out in in a walmart and have that set up they are reaching audiences that don't necessarily go or are looking for something to read they're sort of treating these books as something that, like when you go to the grocery store you're trying to get milk right but impulse yeah exactly they're, they're sort of treating it in that way and not uh and and they're hitting those people and those are people who do uh do pick up those magazines and it's why they're there they they are hitting people who are impulsive to to buy, and I think that's also a good way to introduce people who wouldn't normally necessarily go to a Barnes & Nobles, let alone a comic book store, get introduced to this medium.
0: So I'm really glad you brought up the Walmart situation because in the interview with ICB2, Didio specifically talks about that, and I'm just gonna read a little bit from the actual interview itself uh, on that front. So, uh, uh, the question is asked, you must be seeing some POS data. I don't know what that stands for. I doubt it stands for piece of shit. Ah!
3: Point, of, uh, point of
0: sale. Point of sale. Point of yeah. sale. No, Thomas, right. My dude, Marco. <laughs> What's the sell-through been like so far? And Didio says, the sell-through has been very strong. The problem has been that a lot of the places had sold out. Because they're waiting two weeks, the restock is actually taking place right now. Lee they're very happy with the sales though didio yeah very excited about it the nut and then the question the number of stores described in the announcement is about two-thirds of the walmart's how are those stores picked didio they're based on the aisle size and the location lee i think generally they're the superstores. didio also because it's because they have the shelf space that's available for us We have a plan in place, if this is successful, on how to expand into the stores with a smaller footprint. But we're going to wait and see how it goes. We're going to a re-evaluation after the first six months. Then, a very interesting question is asked uh, that speaks to something you just mentioned, Marco. Why are you doing continuing stories for this program? It seems like that's more of an impulse location video because that's our business. We're in the periodical business. There are complete complete stories. There are complete ideas in our books. A lot of the reprint material that we're trying to do is keep it as contemporary as possible, and those are periodical in the nature of the storytelling. We haven't done many standalones. We as an industry have gotten away from that. Therefore, we want to make sure that we create a habitual buying return customer. We want to make sure the stories have complete thoughts in each issue, but something that brings them back, for the continuing issues. That to me. Is fa- fascinating. Because what he's saying is. That they're trying to use. These Walmart issues. As jumping on points. For readers to become activated comic book readers. Outside of Walmart. Harris made made the point. That Walmart does not carry. Individual floppy comics. And he's absolutely right. I made that point when this was first announced. But. It's very clear that the reason that they're doing this is to get more exposure for comics and find new readers any which way they can. The interview talks about the, interview talks about the uh, YA novels that they're putting out and how that, how that factors in. It talks about Barnes and & Noble and how that factors in. And they're basically saying, listen, we are trying a wide net approach. We've never done this before. We're trying to get people wherever, wherever we can and the other the last thing i wanted to say is this has worked before right the different there's no difference between selling comic books at walmart and selling them in you know at, at uh, newsstands it's the same thing you go to a newsstand for a coffee you see batman you buy batman you go to a newsstand for a candy you see the x men you buy the x men this is something that has been done in the past so The fact that DC is bringing a modern version of that back is extremely smart. And these are books that are tailored to Walmart with only the biggest names in the industry in a way that hopefully will see people interested in seeing these stories continue and seeing what else is happening in the DC universe. It's not that easy to sell somebody on Teen Titans number 31 by who knows who but it's a lot easier to say hey you know who Brian Michael Bendis is you know who Tom King is well here's their fresh number 1 issue in magazine form that you can pick up right alongside people or us weekly or whatever the hell else you read
3: yeah they're recontextualizing their product and and that is what they need to they need to be doing and it's what we've sort of been saying all along is they need to be thinking about their product differently it's not only the direct market they there are other avenues that they need to be exploring that cast a wider that cast a wider net to what you were saying sean that you we they need to be hitting people who don't go to the comic book stores they need to be hitting people who don't go to the bookstores because those are people who still read they just don't read the things that they don't have put in front of them and if they have it put in front of them they're going to read it and they're they're looking at their customers at it looks more like at a lifetime value they're they're trying to extend that and make these people these uh, new people not I, I don't even think it's necessarily activated comic book readers. I think it's just activated readers who read comics.
2: But like I think the thing is it's like there's a chance for it to work both ways because I mean like I know each of us have a different story for like how we got into comics. But like personally like that was the gateway for me, you know, like both times like when I was a kid um you know I I got somebody bought me a, a collected volume of Spider-Man of Calvin and Hobbes of a couple other things that I would get it a Barnes and Noble or like a Target or something you know like while my mom was busy fucking shopping and wanted me to shut the fuck up and it wasn't until I was 16 where I got Similar kind of thing. Somebody knew I was a Spider Man fan. They bought me volume one of Ultimate Spider Man. I was like, yo, this is really good. I found my local shop and that was when I got activated as a comic book reader again. You know, and it's like people don't. And this is the last thing I want to say and then I'll turn over to you, Phil, is that like this is true across all entertainment mediums, right? Anything that's not TV or movies is not standard. I guess you could throw books in there too, but. They're less popular, a lot less popular than they used to be. Uh, But those those things are like accepted forms of entertainment. And almost anything else, even if it's not like a weirdness or an otherness that makes you not want to do it, it's not a thing that people oftentimes think of as for me, you know? And it's not until you have that first experience of like, oh, I read this comic and I liked it. Maybe I like comics, you know? Or I played this video game and it made me realize that, oh, there's more... There's more than one kind of game or there's more than one kind of comic, right? It's not all about this or all, you know, all it takes is that first taste, you know? Um, Marco and I have both talked about this. We're like, I remember the early 2000s and being like, why the fuck would anybody watch somebody play video games on the internet? And like, here I am every day. I watch Let's Plays now. You know, it's that once you get that taste of a, of a piece of content that speaks to you and makes sense to you and your sensibilities or the way that you like to consume content, it opens a door for you. And if you realize that you like it, then you're more willing to be that person who goes the next step, who goes to the specialty store, or who gets comicsology on their phone, or what the fuck ever it is. Maybe you just keep going to Walmart and buy more fucking Tom King trades because you're like, well, I like Batman. Fine, great. That's that means you're reading comics and that's another activated reader. And I think to your point, Marco, it's just the difference between are you an activated reader in the way that you're a singles person who goes to the fucking store every week? Or are you like a trade waiter or somebody like and those are both valid ways to buy the books. You know, it doesn't matter. Um,
1: I like the idea, folks, that. Someone has to buy Pete picture books to get him to shut up.
2: <laughs> Have you
1: met me? I think that's really <laughs> funny. I like I like the idea of the five of us being out one day and Pete is just going on on about his new obsession with anime and it's like, hey Pete, look, picture book <laughs> Yeah, this is pretty cool, guys.
2: Wow <laughs> Guys, look, it's a book all about Spider Man <laughs>
1: Um Obviously this is this is the target of any, any major company that is, for a lack of a better word, regressing in sales. Um, Nestle, of all companies, I saw just last night, is trying to rebrand a lot of their older products to try to get more brand loyalty in supermarkets. This, uh, this is the kind of shit these companies do. Um, you want to try to... It's a it's a constant struggle for DC and Marvel particularly of trying to bring in new readers, unconventional readers while maintaining the old readers. The New 52 as an initiative was an, was an agenda to try to bring in new readers. And it seemed like it both alienated old readers and unsuccessfully retained new readers for the most part. Something like this For better or worse, (coughs) worse, much worse, Walmart is emblematic of rural America and suburban America. It is the major shopping destination for pretty much any town in the Midwest, any town in the South, any non-metropolitan area, Walmart is the hub for a lot of people shopping. Especially lower income and you know like middle class, lower middle class families. If you can provide a steady injection of comic books into even a fraction of the daily people who just frequent the magazine section in the United States alone, you'd get a magnificent boop boop. <laughs> Magnificent and boom in and sales. Uh mm-hmm. it's a larger audience size. It's a larger audience size, that's right. And you're casting a wider net as as I think Dan Dio put, uh with the hope that you'll have a few carp in there. Or in the case of DC Comics, I guess Jokerfish. <laughs>
2: that's good. <laughs> but yeah, I mean I th- I think that, that that approach works, right? Because I think realistically if you're talking about it in just specifically this like walmart impulse buy scenario like who are they probably targeting most in in that scenario it's like kids right like you're there there's a family you, you want to get the book or whatever while they're kids maybe they read those books and a certain level of them grow up to be you know weird dorks with sexual kinks like all of us uh and if not There's always a steady stream of a new generation of kids who are going to be turned on to these characters as long as they're a part of the dominant popular culture, which doesn't seem to be changing, you know? If anything, we're seeing companies invest more in these properties. So, you know, as long as this boom is going, this might be a really smart way to try to ride the wave. And maybe a percentage of that percentage becomes new readers who are with you for the next decade or two. But even if not, even if it is just capitalizing on the moment – Well, this is the moment to do it. Also,
0: uh, you know, whether or not this ends up working, whether or not you agree or disagree with DC's tactics, whether or not you think that Batman belongs in a YA novel, you know, whatever. The fact of the matter is that they're trying something. They're trying a lot of different things and they're trying things that seem like they could work. Uh, That's a lot more than you can say. About basically every other publisher that's out and I'm I applaud DC's efforts here big time because they're you know they're really taking this this problem on firsthand and not praying that some mythical new readership is going to come from thin air if they put the right character in the right spot or the right creator on the right book
2: yeah trying shit they've done time and time
0: again you know so this is exciting to me and i would love to see it be a big success i hope dc has a permanent little spot in every walmart i'd love to see that
1: yeah why not right like (laughs) listen dc walmart anything to get pete to shut up for five seconds uh marco any last thoughts thanks marco
3: no, <laughs> I was thinking for a sec. No,
0: don't do it too hard. You'll hurt yourself. It's a really good interview, the ICV two interview. Uh, if you're if you're into this kind of thing, I highly recommend checking it out. It's certainly worth your time. So we said we were going to talk about the Dark Knight uh, a little later on, and we are because. Warner Brothers has announced that they will be celebrating The Dark Knight's 10th anniversary with an IMAX re-release. Now, this was actually announced a few weeks ago, um, but we were so busy with everything San Diego Comic-Con that we just couldn't get to it, but this was announced. You and me uh, both, man. Yeah, right. Uh, The movie was released on July 18th, 2008, which seems like a million years ago, and last week at the same time. Yeah. As crazy as that sounds. Yeah, I hear <laughs> for,
2: you. For perspective, I was working my very first job when this movie came out. I was working, I was scooping ice cream, and I remember, like, that, like, the day it came out, I was, I had been at work and then went to go see it that night on opening night. It's fucking yeah. makes me feel a hundred years old. <laughs> I, I can but I smell a main topic coming.
0: Yeah, that's right. If you want to see the Dark Knight re-release, that's too bad uh, because it's sold out. What? Uh, yeah. I, I was just able, learned about
2: it. Well, man.
0: Yeah, you snoozy lose. Get back in the ice cream to,
1: shop, my dude.
0: <laughs> I was able to score tickets for myself, thankfully. Uh, it is only going to be happening for one week. Uh, it will begin Friday, August 24th and it will run one week across just a few locations. At least these were the locations that were announced to start. Not sure if any more have been announced, though I don't believe so. AMC Universal City Walk, IMAX Universal City, which is, you know, Universal Studios. Uh, AMC in Lincoln Square, so that's here in New York. Uh, AMC Metreon IMAX in San Francisco. And Ontario Place Cinesphere IMAX in Toronto. I had a hell of a time scoring tickets for this. I was only able to find something for Sunday. That Sunday. uh, And I'm thankful to be going at all. uh, Because this is a monumental event. It's going to be uh, shot. Or we're going to be able to see it. In 70mm. I believe. um, Which is the largest possible screen. So that's pretty cool. Uh, And yeah. I'm I'm really excited. And so I want to use this as a springboard into our main topic, which is just a, a you know, a look back at a at a phenomenal movie, at a movie that really changed the game for comic book films. So retrospective on the Dark Knight for the ten-year anniversary, uh the movie released ten years ago and changed the game. Almost immediately, its impact on the film industry could be felt. Uh, Many, many films borrowed heavily from its tone and more mature approach to comic book films. So, I want to take a look at this movie and sort of dissect it from all the angles that we can. Talk about how it impacted us, as Pete already got the ground running with that. How it impacted the film industry and whether the films that came after it learned the wrong lessons from this movie.
1: Sean, are you sure, gonna wear hockey yeah. pads to it? <laughs> <laughs>
2: I might. Yeah, I mean I I mine was I, I guess just kinda kicked off by like a little bit of reminiscing, but uh yeah, I mean I guess um I I I remember that time really fondly. Uh because it was like just a perfect cross-section for me i guess like 2008 you know i i was really starting to get back into comic books um at that point uh i i had like just picked up ultimate spider-man for the first time um that like i think that winter so you know like it, it earlier that year and um you know i think like there had been kind of that attitude that like superhero movies were like done and like the, the trend was kind of over and then we had Iron Man and the dark Knight both that year. And it was just like such a cool time for me to be like getting back into comics, you know? Um, it really, I think helped like nudge me to get into it further. Um, honestly. Uh, and uh, you know, it, it, I think like, I I think about this movie and I think like, it's one of the few examples of a of a film that I think is um put on a pedestal and like it actually kind of deserves it, you know I think like it, it's uh it's not just a really great superhero film or a really really great film i think it it's it's a really good time capsule for like what worked in cinema at that time, you know like and also through the lens of like kind of being one of the things that I feel like ushered in this kind of like age of nerd shit being in the popular zeitgeist in the way that it is, you know, it was one of the first real like mainstream wins uh, in that way. And, you know, I think like now that's kind of a funny concept, but at the time for me, it was like a huge deal.
1: Well, just, just keep in mind that the period right before it was a real lull in the genre of superhero adaptations, um, the types of films that were coming out at that time before Iron Man and The Dark Knight were movies like Ghost Rider, Ghost Rider Two, Fantastic Four, Fantastic Four Two, Rise of the Silver Surfer, X Men Three, Spider Man Three. It was just miss after miss. Superman Returns. Yep. Just miss after just miss. A after lot after of miss.
2: movies that just missed the mark. You the, know, the
1: only gem the
2: only diamond in the rough in there was Batman Begins. And even that it got overlooked. It did. It wasn't like a big deal. Like I had seen it and loved it, but
1: So there you have it. Um this it really was like the the beginning of the superhero bubble as people like to describe it.
3: It it sort of seemed like it, it legitimized the superhero films because we had seen that lull and it's like, oh, we can make something of this quality. Something similar to uh, what we've experienced recently with like Logan, I sort of may have like seen that comparison thrown around of just this is the movie that legitimized superheroes and then Logan is sort of the movie that shows that superheroes can be a film kind of thing and those kind of parallels. Uh, I agree largely with what Pete said. Uh, it was very much, um, for me, I still hadn't been into, like I, I, would, I would watch the Spider-Man movie I didn't go see Fantastic Four, I'd go see X-Men, but that's about it. And then this was one of the first movies that led me to get at least tangentially interested in um, in comics and in other uh, superhero properties and things like that. So yeah, it, it I think it had a, a huge impact outside of just being what it was for superhero films. I think it was, at least for me, it was one of those small stepping stones to Uh, to comics and to the expansion of nerd culture as pete said
1: the big thing for me is that this is maybe the crowning achievement of what christopher nolan has done i've seen every movie of his and this is before christopher nolan uh became a meme of himself a character of himself um a lot of his and, and i think he's reigned it back in his most recent uh film dunkirk but for a while there a lot of the movies that came out between The Dark Knight and and Dunkirk like uh, Inception and The Dark Knight Rises and Interstellar uh, this is when Chris Ronolan thought he was fucking Stanley Kubrick 2.0 and had his head up his ass this and it's because of this movie though this movie was so good and is probably his magnum opus of his filmography that it created the the egomaniac, egomaniacal monster that became Christopher Nolan as we know him now. Um, additionally, this this is this is also a reined in Hans Zimmer score. This is before, bra brum, brum <laughs> in every fucking score he does for Christopher Nolan movies. So yeah. this was the calm before the storm in that regard. But the other thing I wanted to point out is that I feel like 2008 was an important year altogether for films, because, and this is something that Sean was trying to allude to kind of in, in the in the, in the the beginning here, is I feel like those two movies totally led to the type of superhero movies we basically got for the next six years. We got Warner Brothers trying to basically totally recreate The Dark Knight in all of their films, their, all their superhero films. And... Disney then bought Marvel Studios and Marvel Comics, and basically tried to recreate Iron Man and a lot of their films for the next six years, give or take, as well.
2: Mostly successfully.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so, I
0: I have a actually Phil, you didn't mention your relationship with the film.
1: Do you do you have a? <laughs> Yeah, I used it as an opportunity to dunk on Christopher Nolan and
2: Hans Zimmer. Yeah. who well, I I, uh, I like Hans Zimmer quite a bit, but... Um... You like Christopher Nolan quite a bit, too. It's just, like, you definitely have this very, like... I think you're so hard on him because you really like him when he's at his best.
3: Interstellar was a good movie, Phil. It's,
2: it's okay. Um, so all is right. a masterpiece. It's
3: definitely me,
1: not, so. but we can have that conversation another time. That's definitely your opinion. <laughs> um... I think most of his filmography is really underwhelming. Actually, his best movies, at any yeah. so about the okay. Dark Knight. All right. <laughs> <laughs> um, I also remember seeing this with my little cousin, who was like seven years old at the time. Um, my brother and my dad, and my dad my dad doesn't go to a lot of movies very often. He doesn't really like going to theaters. He doesn't really like leaving the house. He likes he likes just hanging out at home. That's his thing. I respect that. <laughs> um but the fact that we got him out for not only a movie, but a midnight premiere of a movie is something I don't think has ever been done before. And I don't think will ever be done again. Um and I remember all five of four of us watching that movie and being really taken aback. My particularly my 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 young adolescent cousin, who may who maybe was a little too young for the movie, but the fact that he was a, blown away by this movie. I'd never seen anything like it. It was like, I think we all have that movie we see when we're at that really formative age that just fucking blows our mind.
3: Um, Yeah, Land Before Time. Was it? <laughs> was it? No.
2: It blew their minds. I mind. used to love Land Before Time, straight up.
1: It blew their minds literally, and I mean the
2: dinosaurs. Um, Yeah, for me that was definitely Star Wars.
1: Yeah. Dark Knight is the standard bearer, you know? Like, I rewatched it a year or two ago for the first time, and probably since like maybe 2010, 2011 It had been a while, um and I was really worried it wouldn't hold up. I, I had rewatched uh, Batman Begins uh, not too long before that, and I remember thinking like this has a lot of the problems that I find with a lot of Christopher Nolan movies. I, I'm not crazy about the dialogue. I, I didn't think it had aged as well as I remember liking it back in 2008 or whatever. So I was really concerned watching Dark Knight again uh, with a with a lens of, of watching a movie now. And it really held up. Uh, I was really impressed by it. Uh, it's a masterpiece. I don't know what else you can say. Um, I, it completely transformed culture. How, how many assholes did he see dressed up as Heath Ledger's Joker for the next three years?
2: Yeah, uh, so... <laughs> Well, I was going to say, I feel like it really reignited our culture's interest in Batman, too. You know, like, Batman was such a phenomenon in the 90s, and I feel like this, like, and it was easy to do because we were all, like, at least our generation was already so, like, activated for Batman, but it was very much like a thing of just, like, oh, right, Batman's a fucking thing again, you know, and then it's like, we got the Arkham games, you know, like, I, I remember, like, Going back and rewatching the cartoon at that point, like it was like very much just like yeah, like Batman's back, man.
1: We we tend to forget that because of how much the Batman versus Superman film really reignited the love of Batman popular culture uh, in an unprecedented way. Now all we do is talk about Batman because of how good that movie was.
2: Stop.
0: <laughs> so it hurts. It physically hurts me, Phil. <laughs> I. My relationship with this movie is is pretty deep and started way before the movie even came out. And so I'm going to use that to kind of go through the major beats of why this movie was so important, even before it launched, and then how it changed the industry. So when I was... Following this, I was a huge fan of Batman because of the comics. Grant Morrison's uh, iconic run was, you know, in the throes of what was going on. uh, And that was really cool. And so I had never been more of a a fan of Batman than at that time. And I was excited for The Dark Knight. But, you know, in 2007, we didn't really know much. 2006, we didn't really know much about what was going to happen. And then when Heath Ledger was announced as being cast for The Dark Knight, I was very, very, very afraid. Because I knew him from Brokeback Mountain, obviously I had opinions about that. I didn't really think much of him as an an actor, and so I thought it was just horrible casting. And at that time, I was always on the forums and never (laughs) a poster, always a reader. And the the reaction was largely negative to that casting. So the first thing that this movie really did, even before it came out, was that it broadened the minds of fans as to the kinds of actors that are acceptable for these roles and caused us to realize, in a lot of ways, that actors are going to bring themselves to the project and that that's what we should want. I think prior to that, you wanted someone who looked the part, but it didn't really matter what kind of actor they were, as long as they were quote-unquote good. For comic book films, we just wanted to see Batman on screen, regardless of who really was playing him. Uh, So, Heath Ledger really changed the game in that vein. And I think he became synonymous with the Joker, but I think you can look to a lot of future casting, and you kind of go, wow. If it wasn't for Heath Ledger... Would we have been as accepting of this or that? Could we have looked past who this person was or
2: whatever and, and gotten invested uh it in, you know, in, in their performance? Yeah, it's I think it's especially funny that it happened in Batman too, because I feel like the same thing happened with Michael Keaton. You know, where it's like he was Mr. Mom. And then it's like, and now he's Batman. You know, and like and that was suit like I remember, you know, for like previous generations that was a very similar thing but yeah i, I also remember it because for me like i had never seen brookback mountain but uh i loved him in 10 things i hate about you and i was like this guy <laughs> yeah i saw <laughs> like, him in i was a knight's Tale. That's yeah the- right exactly and it's like this, the pretty boy guy he's the joker uh, okay
0: yeah uh so that that was my first reaction to How this whole thing started was sort of horror, like, oh, come on, we're really going with this guy? Uh, But obviously it worked out. So, after that, uh, things started to ramp up in terms of promotion for the film. Even before we got our first set photo or really any kind of release like that, uh, the geniuses in advertising at Warner Brothers came up with a brilliant idea... For an, an an ARG, I guess is what it's called, um, which was just a a uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, sort of a game that you played in real life, which was like a like a scavenger hunt, and you were searching for all this information. There were these websites that got released that had to do with the film that sort of placed you inside the universe of the Dark Knight. Uh, I, I, do, 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 you, do you guys know what I'm talking about? Are no. you familiar
2: with this? While no, I was, yeah, I, didn't, I was not aware of this. So
0: it was a viral campaign uh, that the studio used to allow you to reveal secrets for the movie. So there was uh, various different websites. You could get emails from the Joker and you could have correspondence with these with these characters from, from the movie. Uh, Harvey Dent would call you and it was a pre-recorded message, but it was really Aaron Eckert, and he would call you. And he would, uh, it was, it was his camp. Basically, he was campaigning, right? And oh, that's cool. That's yeah, really cool. <laughs> there were lots of things like that. It was very, very deep and involved. Uh, you had to go to certain stores, and if you, if you went to a particular store that was lo- that was designated on the website, and you asked for a cake, they would give you a real cake that had uh, a piece of the puzzle in it. That you would then use to unlock more information. And this ARG is actually the way that the very first photo of Heath Ledger was released to the public. It was through the efforts of the individuals who took part in that, that we got that first picture. Um, Wow. I vaguely remember that.
1: I vaguely remember that.
0: Yeah. Then that takes us to the first image that we got of Heath Ledger as the Joker. That got so much hate. Really? Oh well, yeah, you're you're right. I thought it was crazy looking. I thought it was very, very, very cool. But you're right, there was hate
1: because everyone pictures, you know, uh, Caesar Romero and uh, Jack Nicholson Joker, uh, you know that that Silver Age looking Joker. And this is a man. Yeah, he's wearing suit. I mean, he's Ledger's Joker, wore a suit, but he's he's he looks deranged. Um, he's got he's got cuts on his face. Oh, like uh, that that. That only had re- that added fuel to the fire of, uh, of internet fanboys being just ravenously angry. Well,
0: I- I'm gonna I'm gonna share the first picture with you guys here so that you can see. Uh, it was a very kind of creepy image. Uh, it was a close up image of just his face. You can see the cuts very clearly. Uh, uh, and, and then it caused a lot of questions. I remember we were asking, you know, is this paint? Is this...
1: Yes. Um, oh, shit. Wow. I remember this. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I do late. remember this. Because
1: I was, I was on the, the Killer Movies forums at the time. <laughs> I was on superherohype.com. I, yeah, 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 yeah. I And I remember everyone being really angry at that image.
0: A lot of people were. Absolutely. So we got that image, and it was polarizing, as Phil pointed out, Um, but I think that it showed that we were in for something different than what we had gotten before, Uh, and then things continued through the ARG that I was very invested in. I spent a lot of my time. I didn't have much of a life, so... I was very invested in the following of the Dark Knight and seeing where this was going. And we got the, f- the very first trailer also through through the uh, ARG. Do you guys remember the first Dark Knight trailer? Not at all.
4: Mm-mm.
0: No. You're gonna make us watch it now, aren't you? No. Uh, because we don't have time to do that. <laughs> but I, I remember it. And I remember that all the fears that I had were assuaged by the very first Dark Knight trailer. Uh, seeing Batman in his new costume—that was very exciting. Seeing him on the, the the classic image of him on top of that skyscraper yes. building. Yes, I do remember him? that. He's not yeah. wearing
1: hockey pads. <laughs>
0: that was that was something that really, really stuck with me, and I don't think that I've ever been as excited for a movie as I was for that film uh when I saw that very first trailer, just because it it showed that this movie wasn't playing around, you know it was a different joker than we'd ever gotten before, so skipping past a lot of the rest of the stuff, we finally get to the movie and we watch it, and I don't know about you guys. But this movie made me feel literally every emotion. I went, I was happy because I was watching it. Uh, I was sad, of course, for Rachel, you know, Rachel Dawes and all that stuff. Um, and uh, I felt bad for Batman because he really kind of lost. This was the first superhero movie, first movie that I could recall ever where the protagonist was the loser, ultimately.
1: Well, The the villain is what shines so Brightly here is that the Joker Is ultimately successful Um, This was kind of A new version of the Joker than we had Really ever seen before he's just like a full Blown anarchist Uh, He just wants to watch the world burn Um, Incidentally Sidebar this is the most Quotable movie from the last 25 years
2: Yeah That's for sure um That classic line by Michael Kane.
1: Michael Kane. <laughs> <laughs> I failed you, Master Bruce. Um sorry. Well we can we can on the Dark Knight raises later to the chagrin of Sean. Um, um But this is a different Joker than people were used to seeing. He's like a full blown anarchist, he wants to watch the world burn, and everything is like a sociological experiment for him to see how people react. Uh, there's the scene where, uh, he shoots the commissioner of the police force before Jim Gordon. And he says, I think the Batman, or he says it in a recording or something where he's like, you know, when people die on mass, is a statistic, but you know, you shoot one commissioner or one mayor, or one president, and everyone loses their minds, that kind of thing. um, And that's very, like, anarchist in nature. Like, you take out the figureheads. It's very interesting. Like, very militant anarchist, I should say. Um, And not just that, but the jokery things. Like, your very introduction of the character is him strapped with a bomb on his chest. And he says he wants to see a magic trick. And he puts a pencil through someone's forehead or their eye. And that immediately sets the tone of what this guy is. Or he sets an entire pile of money on fire.
3: Well, yeah. isn't your first introduction the bank robbery? Oh,
2: right. And he shoots his own henchman wearing yeah, a Joker yeah, mask. Yeah. yeah. But see, that, that feels pretty like run of the mill, right? Like, it's like, oh, he's a bad guy. Okay. He doesn't care, you know, about anybody. He's just, he needs the money, right? But then it's like, oh, he doesn't give a fuck about the money. He doesn't give a fuck about anything.
1: This whole movie is just a showcase for Heath Ledger's Joker. That's the main thing people walk away talking about. Joker wins at the end. He successfully paints Harvey Dent, the White Knight, the Light Knight, as he he turns him into a villain. And they have to make a conscientious choice, Batman and Jim Gordon, on painting the crimes of Harvey Dent on the Batman, the Dark Knight. Because they can't tarnish the public image of what Harvey Dent stood for when he was still Harvey Dent. So, to your point, Sean, Batman does lose, but it's to elevate the film, because this is the Joker movie, in the, much in the same way that Avengers Infinity War is the Thanos movie.
0: Well, I actually want to counteract that. I want to, I want to push back on that, because I think... God, I like a lot of fighting you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, you're great. Man. <laughs> uh, I, I think that this movie is a Batman movie because it pushes him to his limits and it shows who Batman really is and I think a lot of superhero movies don't do enough to get the most that you can out of their characters, especially out of their heroes and I think you do that with different ways depending on the character but with Batman Christopher Nolan and co. were able to boil him down to what he is at the end of the day and sort of figure out what makes him tick, and then have the Joker push that as far as possible. They built the movie around Batman's one rule that he won't kill, and the Joker used that against him. You know, and I think that that was that was brilliant. Um, and you've you've seen that utilized that same strategy. You've seen that utilized in, in, in movies that have come out since. In Captain America: The Winter Soldier, what is he faced with? Well. What does Captain America care about? Captain America cares about truth, uh, the American way. He cares about the American people, all that stuff. He cares about his friends. What is he faced with? Uh, Bucky, who was was a a young kid, who was his friend in the war, that now comes back as a corrupted figure. Uh, The United States government, S.H.I.E.L.D., corrupted from the inside. Where does that leave a guy like Captain America? You know where does that leave who was seen as the figurehead of the United States? They pushed him to his limits in that movie, and I think that's that's a lesson from the Dark Knight. The prior superhero movies weren't really concerned with that kind of stuff. the real character study stuff that I think this movie did so well, not just for him but for certainly for uh, Jim Gordon and for two face
1: what do you what do you think of Batman's motivation? In this film, because there's a lot of people who take umbrage with the fact that Batman doesn't want to be Batman. Uh, He's like talking about how he wants to retire and be with Rachel, and he's trying to figure out basically the way to end on mass crime. Right, that's like the whole initiative. Um, But a lot of Batman fanboys take umbrage with the fact that it's like, well, Batman can't retire, but the the war never ends.
2: Yeah, go ahead, Pete. What I think is kind of cool about, you know, that, though, is, like, Nolan's trilogy is definitely kind of written as, like, at least I feel like this movie is the setup, too, and then the last movie is about it being Batman's last story. You know, about, like, yeah, the war never ends because comics never end, but, like, in Nolan's, you know, interpretation of the character, which is supposed to be a grounded one, like, Batman gets old and slows down and eventually dies if he keeps doing this you know like that's there is no happy ending unless he quits so i think like having him struggle with that is like just a natural extension of like how nolan tries to take a look at this world and this character
1: he has magical knee apparatuses that uh surgically repair his knees to not be in shambles in the next film don't talk about rises. <laughs> I, I think
0: a lot of people actually miss the point with this trilogy, which is that it's really not about Batman in the traditional sense. Uh, Batman in this movie, uh, or in this trilogy, serves as a psychological uh, superego, for lack of a better term. Batman is a child's reaction to trauma. Batman is the superhero that wasn't there to protect Bruce, so Bruce created it. And it's a it's about Bruce's struggle to let go of that because he doesn't need it anymore. Uh, in the comics, a lot of people say that Batman is the character, Bruce Wayne is the mask, and these films absolutely try to destroy that point of view by saying, well, all Bruce really is is a traumatized young person. And he created this in order to avoid and and sort of process in his own way his pain. Uh, It's a tool. And by the end of the trilogy, The Dark Knight Rises, uh, he doesn't need that anymore. He doesn't need it the way he used to need it. Even in The Dark Knight, he's moving beyond it and trying to, and you can see that. He's saying, I, I kind of want to live a regular life. I want to try. And it doesn't work because Gotham still needs him, and he still has to do what he's called to do. But by The Dark Knight Rises, he sees that there's a way out, and uh, that's why the character John Blake is so important, because John Blake represents the way out. Not in the sense that... Um, Bruce Wayne will be happy because of John Blake but because he knows that there are other people who will do what he's tried to do all these years so right so John Blake is, is, is Batman now in the sense that if Batman is only a psychological super ego that's created to protect the individual and then by proxy protect Gotham John Blake is going gonna, is gonna to do that that's what the end of the movie is supposed to signify.
2: Robin. Well And uh I, I wanted to build off of uh something that you had said before, Sean, which is I think it's really interesting how that as a theme throughout the the trilogy is I think actually best exemplified in the second movie because it's a it's a, a point in Bruce's life where he is kind of in transition, uh between like becoming Batman and realizing that Batman needs to end. And it's funny because I think, like you said, the film is about pushing Batman to his limits through the Joker. But that's also like the – it's not just something that's represented in their conflict and even in Harvey Dent. But like it's – like you think about that scene with uh, the bomb on the boats with the prisoners, right? And it's the exact same question of who are you when, when you're pushed, You know, like, who are you on your backs against the wall? And, you know, um, do you uphold your morals? You know, how do you respond to trauma? How do you respond to stress in a difficult situation? And uh, do you uphold your humanity? And um, I I think it's – that's why this movie is probably the best in the trilogy Um, because – and for a lot of other reasons, right? But I I think narratively that's why it works the best is because its focus is so laser tight on that theme versus any one conflict in the film. Every single one of the things in the film feeds into that broader narrative and that broader point that he that Nolan is trying to make about, you know, um, all the different ways that people react to it, frankly, right? Like, it isn't just Batman's story, like, or even the Joker's, because I, I largely agree with you, Phil – um, about that interpretation of it being like the Joker show, but you, you can also just look at like the, the broader like context of, of what each of these characters arcs go through and what each of their like experiences is throughout the film. They all play into that, that overall, um, just driving point, I guess.
1: Yeah. That's a good scene in general, the boat scene. Uh, I think the thing. That I, fine, no one's gonna do it. I'll do it. I'll stand up for the Joker. That's referencing that fucking guy in the boat who said he's gonna kill everyone. Um, <laughs> what? What makes the Joker so compelling? I guess is that he's very strongly convicted in a way that none of the Marvel antagonists had been until Thanos. Um, this was a multi-dimensional, fleshed-out character. He has that quote. Early in the film, that's like, uh, their morals are code. It's a bad joke, dropped at the first sign of trouble. They're only as good as the world allows them to be, which creates that prisoner's dilemma scenario where you have a bunch of normal civilians on one boat and a bunch of convicts on the other. And it's it's just emblematic of everything the Joker's trying to do in a movie. It's a giant social experiment. Uh, at the first sign of trouble... People will look out for self-preservation. It's that—that's the point he's trying to make. He's trying to point, he, paint humanity in the worst light, as being self-serving objectivists, and basically the, the 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 confines of it is that they have like what an hour to make a decision, otherwise they're both both boats are blown up, um, and they ultimately can't do it. So the film is able to portray kind of not necessarily complex, but thought-provoking philosophical experiments through the lens of its antagonist. And that's why I think people remember the Dark Knight more so than the other two films of the Dark Knight trilogy, is that Joker is the most fleshed out and well-developed antagonist of that trilogy because it's the Joker show. And I see you all looking at me. I just wonder why there are no smiles on those faces. <laughs> so,
0: The Dark Knight was also the fourth movie to make a billion dollars. Oh. The other- Only the fourth. Can
1: could we could try to guess the other three?
0: Uh, you can try to guess, but I don't know them, so... Never mind. Uh,
4: <laughs>
0: um,
2: so, and it's also the just, very... I- I'm sorry, I just love the idea of Sean just letting us guess and then be like, yeah, good guesses, I don't know.
1: Was <laughs> it <laughs> Titanic? Probably. Uh, yeah,
0: <laughs> Ty- Titanic, uh, Gone with the Wind. Uh,
1: oh, are these prorated
0: for, like, inflation? Yeah, of course. Okay. Um, Jurassic Park and Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace.
1: So it was probably Jurassic Park... Uh, *Phantom Menace* and *Titanic* were the actual ones to break a billion dollars. Because I don't think *Gone with the Wind* physically broke a billion dollars in 1939. I think that's prorated for inflation.
0: Yeah, the yeah the list includes quite a few, uh, quite quite a few movies, um, that are either way quite <laughs> old. Yeah. In any event, um, it's the first comic book movie to do it, which is pretty significant.
4: Yeah. *Batman*
0: um, '89 can do it. Right, exactly. So that in and of itself, proving that comic book movies could be for the masses. I think people in general were were already going to see comic book movies uh, as they would any other. There there wasn't necessarily a, oh, I'm not going to go see Spider-Man. That's a comic book movie. People had embraced those movies, but I don't think that the whole of the population had embraced them in that way. I don't think they were quite cool yet. And I think with The Dark Knight, they became cool, um, and any kind of person could now enjoy a comic book movie. There are people who hate comic book movies in general that love The Dark Knight, you know? Um, right. It, it was yeah. that
1: movie. Th- the truth be told, it that- was it was the movie we needed, but maybe it wasn't the one we deserved. <laughs>
2: Uh, I think I think a big thing is like that was I uh, I remember it being like the first time that I, I remember people were like, Oh, this is just like a good movie. Like it's not like, it doesn't feel like a popcorn movie or like a blockbuster or whatever, you know? And I think it's also worth pointing out that like, I think both Superman and, and the first Spider-Man both kind of had mainstream appeal in that way, but they were also both at times like, like Spider-Man, I think like wouldn't have been probably as successful as it was if it wasn't immediately after 9-11. You know? Um, and I, I feel like this movie came out like, You know like we had the financial crisis and then it's like this very like dark like it wasn't uplifting it wasn't like you know oh we need this beacon of hope right now it was just like no this is just a really like dark gripping movie that like everybody is talking about you know yeah now
0: I want to I want to pivot and I want to talk about the movies that followed
1: yeah, they would have stopped making Dark Knight movies. It, it, there's a quote in this movie that's really emblematic of that. It. It's you either die a hero or live long enough to see yourself become a villain. And that's true of the Dark Knight trilogy.
0: No, you're wrong. I wasn't talking about the Dark Knight Rises. feel I, I love agreeing about, with you. <laughs> I was talking about the the lessons that were learned from this film and what other movie studios, what Warner Brothers themselves took from this and what we got that was right and what we got that wasn't so great yeah as a result of the dark
1: i think the warner brothers executives stood in their office um when they were preparing man of steel and they said it's simple uh we kill the superman and then they did
2: (laughs) yeah i think um it's it's bad lessons were learned from the movie uh, because I think like most things that are done reactionarily um, – and this isn't a hard, fast rule. There are plenty of examples of this working. But this movie worked and to a lesser degree Christopher Nolan's trilogy worked because your mileage may vary on one and three uh, because he had a vision that was unique. And worked uniquely for Batman. It wasn't uh, a template for how to make a good superhero movie in the same way that I think Iron Man was, because Iron Man didn't. Iron Man's success, I don't think, was like specific to like Iron Man. Like it was like that's that's in my mind. Like I don't see how you make a better Iron Man movie than that. But it's also like. It could also, like, the tone and tenor that they took with the character for that film obviously worked in a lot of other places. You know, the Marvel House style was fine for a lot of other characters. And I think trying to take what works for Batman and apply it to Superman made sense to a bunch of Hollywood suits on paper and doesn't make sense if you have any kind of fundamental understanding of those characters, you know? Yeah, you know,
1: uh, I glad you guys invited me on. I'm a Warner Brothers soup. And uh, I was a big part of the making of the Dark Knight trilogy and the Man of Steel film from behind the scenes. And uh, I don't know anything you just said there, uh, uh, Patrick. But listen, all I know is that audiences love the grimdark stuff. They love the edgy stuff. That's what our think tank said. So we said, what's applied to our movies? Suicide Squad, Man of Steel, Batman v Superman, half of Justice League. It'll work.
3: Yeah, I think, Pete, you made a a really good point that batman isn't a template for a superhero movie it's it's very much the opposite of that it's a it's a film being told using these characters i think uh which is why it was that which is what made it different i think and the lessons learned were very much that is that we can make it a superhero movie by hitting these beats of it being dark, it being uh, violent and it being having to have some kind of an uh, edgy lead and those were unfortunately the things that we got in subsequent movies where the substance wasn't catered to the character and being able to utilize that character in like they they got it right in Wonder Woman where, they utilize her character, and not the Wonder Woman character, but Wonder Woman's character, uh, to push the movie forward. Of her sending that message of hope, and of her sending that message of uh, of strength and compassion. And Batman was very much a about. It was very much not being dark, but being a a hero that wanted better for the city that they lived in which is what made it that which gave it that aspect of that that's well, not police procedural but it gave that aspect of wanting to bring in harvey den wanting to make those changes and wanting to better the world uh in this in the microcosm of gotham city
2: well i think batman's a character that's inherently rooted in trauma in a way that like superman like isn't you know like i mean obviously like the death of his planet or whatever but like that's a minor detail in the original story, right? Like in in uh, All Star Superman, Grant Morrison gives it a page a pa- or a panel, it's a, right? It's a, it's a panel. It's a
1: it's a panel in the original story too.
2: <laughs> yeah, and it's like I don't know. Yeah, I think the thing that you said, Marco, about it it's not a it's not a template. It's just a really good Batman story. And, like, that's the problem, was trying to copy and paste what worked about that, especially without Nolan, because Nolan's a big part of what worked about it. <laughs> I I, don't think that it's even a template for a good
0: Batman story. I yeah. Think it's yeah, I agree with that. A, I think it's – they made a good Batman story by, right, make, yeah. by, by caring about telling a good story. And I think that trying to seek out a template that works across the board for really anything is is not going to work. Um. And I think Christopher Nolan wouldn't have made the Dark Knight Rises of Bat of Superman if he were given the reins. He would have done something different. Um, and what I mean what I mean by the Dark Knight of Super of Superman is just in terms of that tone. I don't think that's what he would have done. Um, he was producer on Man of Steel, though. Yeah, who knows how much that really means? I, I don't really. I take that with a grain of salt, especially since Zack Snyder was at the helm, and I'm. It, that looked like a Zack Snyder movie in terms of, you know, um, so yeah. But I, I don't, I don't think that, I don't think that every movie, I don't think that every movie learned the wrong lesson though. I think that darkening a character or treating them with a more mature scope is a good thing. I think that with I think it, it was very effective with Captain America. I think I see I see you uh, unhappy, Phil. But let me get through you, this. You're
1: a monster. You're not ahead of the curb, unlike the Joker. <laughs> <laughs> I I think
0: that with certain characters, um, treating them that way can be effective. Treating them seriously can be effective. Treating Captain America seriously. I think it was effective. I think it was less effective with Amazing Spider-Man. What it all comes down to is telling a really good story. Um, and I and I think Logan is a great example of a movie that got the right lessons from The Dark Knight. In the sense that it certainly echoes The Dark Knight in terms of the the way that it it, it intended to look at Wolverine look at the world he lives in from a philosophical lens, uh, and it tried to tell a different kind of superhero story. And I think, again, that's a character who, looking at him more critically, looking at him with a more mature lens, other than him just being this cool guy with claws, was super effective.
1: Man, you really are like the Joker. He just guns are too easy. You wanted to use a knife to savor all the little emotions out of me there. Uh, um, I think your main point is right. the The problem is the verbiage, because uh, people use the word like mature, serious, dark in a way that I think is kind of a misnomer. Um, you look at all the assholes who signed this petition for the Zack Snyder director's cut of Justice League, because when they talk about the Zack Snyder's vision of the DC universe, they use words like dark, mature and stuff like that, which I don't think those I don't think those films are mature necessarily.
2: I think that it's just it's Um no. Pete, those movies are <laughs> I'm tagging you in, go on. <laughs> those movies are emotionally stunted just like the man who made them. Dang. Uh that's all I have to say about it. they they specifically appeal in my mind to like thirteen year old boys and men who say things like beta male. Um, well...
0: Daredevil, the television show, is everything I is everything I described. I believe Wonder Woman is everything I described. Just because the Wonder Woman film ha- has a center of hope because of who she is, doesn't mean that it's not dark because it is. Right,
1: and that's what I'm. That's what I'm saying. I'm saying what everything you're saying is not incorrect. It's that those words are used as buzzwords that are so broad that people try to encapsulate that to mean things like. That may be Superman, Dawn of Justice. You
0: know what I mean? Well, uh, similar to the difference between The Dark Knight and those movies, uh, I understand what I'm saying, and I get the message. And those individuals and in those movies don't get the message. They don't understand what they're saying.
1: Some men aren't looking for anything logical like money. It can't be bought, bullied, reasoned, or negotiated with. Some men just want to watch the world burn. Zack Snyder.
0: I had a question for you guys. Uh be- between Batman, Jim Gordon and Harvey Dent, who's your favorite character from The Dark Knight?
3: Dent.
1: Really? Me too.
0: Interesting. Yeah,
3: he's he's the perfect fallen angel, I think.
1: I like that his whole thing is what's fair. Um he so he's, he's the district attorney in this movie, and his whole thing is equity is is justice in the courtroom. Like, um, it's it's like like true justice, true justice. And when he becomes scarred, he decides that everything is just like decided by a coin flip. Basically, uh, everything's by chance.
2: I think Harvey's the most compelling of those three characters, but I think I probably like uh, Jim the best because I think I, I, I think out of all the characters in the film, I relate to him the most because like, it's the, it's I, the like facial he, hair. yeah, it's the facial hair. Um, no, I, I think it's, I think it's just that like his values, at least how they're presented through like his major actions in the film resonate um with me pretty well like i i i like that he like he very much uh is a man who like is thinking about the greater good you know uh and is willing to make compromises for the greater good and whether that's working with a vigilante like batman or telling the public a lie uh to save a really important figure for them uh you know, to create a legend, I guess, is uh, super interesting to me. Because generally, when you think of someone compromising their morals or compromising their values, that's seen as weakness. But I think in the case of Gordon, it actually shows strength and that he's the most emotionally mature of any of the protagonists, you know, because every other character is so rooted in their ideology that they're unable to make what is probably the right decision. You know, um, whether that's Batman's inability to, you know, stop the Joker or, or kill the Joker, whatever, wherever you want to, you know, put that line, or dense inability to deal with trauma at all. You know, that he's this amazing symbol for hope until he's shaken.
1: It's, it's this question for these characters of how far do you go to catch someone that you can't keep up with? Uh, there's that line that Alfred talks about a bandit in Burma or something, and Bruce says, did you catch this bandit? And he said, yeah, to which Bruce asks, how? And he says, we burned the forest down. And there's that scene later in the film where Lucius presents an option to Bruce of this mass surveillance of all of Gotham to try to locate the Joker, and Lucius finds it unconscionable. It's completely unethical. It's an invasion of rights, which is really topical because it was around that time the Patriot Act was really pervasive. And there's still a lot of um, socially relevant questions about government surveillance that are pervasive to this day, obviously. Um, But it's this question of how far do these characters go to catch someone like the Joker, which is really, I think, really compelling. Because... If you don't, he's left to his own devices of basically strapping bombs to ships that could kill a high three-digit amount of people. Yeah, I think in,
0: uh, in terms of what Pete was talking about, uh, in terms of Jim, Jim Gordon as the most uh, capable of, of, of dealing with what needs to be done, I, I think that's Batman i think I think that's Batman because uh Batman is the one who decides that he'll um preserve the legacy of of Harvey in order to you know do what needs to be done, and he is the one who creates that surveillance and then lets it go and I think that that was that was a huge moment, maybe the defining moment of of that film in terms of Batman's character because he represent he could have
2: ultimate. Power. power he he could it's um it's the guy who that the term dictator comes from or not dictator is it it's fuck i'm so sorry i derailed this now i don't remember the guy's name um but it's the story of uh the general who was called to unilaterally lead rome during a time of crisis and then abdicated and then came back again to defend his country again and it's like that oh, exact same uh, kind of uh, uh
3: dictatoritus? Yes! Nice. Thank
2: you, Marco, my fucking dude. Um I made yeah. that. What? Damn it! I totally <laughs> thought you were right. That's hilarious. That fucking I was like, yo, oh, he's got my it! my god! He's got it.
3: <laughs> <Damn>. <laughs> I totally trusted you, Marco. <laughs> sorry, I, th- that was that was a uh, slight sarcasm. I don't think you caught that, sorry.
0: Wait, <laughs> no, I that, just Isn't it Caesar? Because they tell no. that lit- they literally tell that story in the movie about how Caesar didn't give up his power
2: when he was given it, when they, when it was given to him. When they're at that well, dinner. Yeah, well, that was the thing. That was how it was supposed to work, was that you were called to serve, then you would abdicate after the country had been protected, and then Caesar just didn't.
1: Yeah. I'm really, so, I'm really upset about this now, Pete. You have me like, looking at the etymology of fucking dictator and shit. So uh, I
0: want to... I uh, want to... Uh, I, I not respond to that and end this conversation with uh, one last question is The Dark Knight the greatest comic book movie of all time to this point
3: (sighs) Uh, I think Logan surpassed that because it was able to build upon those lessons that it did learn from this film and it was able to take advantage of the, the post superhero fandom that we do have now It was able to play into those sort of, or rather, play out of those tropes and introduce a different kind of storytelling and introduce a different kind of uh, and 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 energy output that maybe was foreshadowed in the in the Dark Knight, but potentially wholly realized up until this point in Logan.
1: Um, I certainly think it's in that discussion. Um, I think movies like the original Superman and Logan, um, personify their genre and were era defining in different ways that you could have a conversation about those two as well. Uh, but for my money, those are probably the three most distinguished films based off superhero characters uh, ever ever released. It's definitely in that discussion I think I think the Dark Knight was perhaps the most culturally culturally significant film of the 2000s. Um, wow I can't think of anything that is close to both quality and resonance.
2: The, I think that's probably fair to say. There's a
1: lot of movies that I would I mean, I, I, let me redact that. There are movies I think that were better than The Dark Knight in the two thousands, but didn't have the same cultural impact, didn't have the same resonance with a large audience. Uh, and there's probably more. There's probably movies that uh,
2: were more popular than The Dark Knight in the two thousands, but they weren't the same quality. I, I also like, and again, this might just be based on my like interests and cultural bubble i don't i can't think of another film near it that was as much of a cultural moment as it was you know like it It was it was the thing at the time you know and like we didn't even talk about like keith ledger's death and everything but like that also elevated it to a whole nother level. And then like when he got the, you know, uh, posthumous Oscar and like, it was a thing that we talked about all for a long time. And it, it really it's, captured. It's the, the only time a superhero actor
1: has won an Academy award.
2: Yep. That's true too. Um. So yeah, I, I, I think, I think you're probably right on that, Phil. There's, uh, there's
1: seldom a crossroad in history where a film is both critically praised to that extent. And also commercially, commercially extremely viable um it was more common in the 70s with movies like the godfather and stuff but for the the large part for the last 20 years that that crossroads are they're not they don't intersect anymore they're they're parallel they never cross for the most part so it's significant in that regard as well
2: yeah that's definitely true um but to answer your question sean yeah I, i think it's hard to say because i think it's kind of a weighted question, almost, you know, to say like the best comic book movie. Because um, I think like this movie is emblematic of, you know, one type of comic book movie, and then there are a lot of other yes. types, you know? Yeah, and but I the, think the like, question is just, is it the best? And, and I, I think that really depends. Like if you're talking uh, about. He's go. got to
1: defend Suicide Squad again.
2: Yeah, of course. Uh, you know me, Daddy's Little Monster. Um <laughs> You know I, I just think it's like it it really depends on what you're looking for to get out of these films, you know? like, because I think there's I think like probably objectively that that this is probably the answer, you know, in terms of just like craftsmanship and execution and even maybe acting performance. Um, but I think there is also something something to be said. For uh, some of the other more conventional superhero films that we've mentioned a, a few times, you know, like that are worthy of being in that conversation as well. Like something like the original Superman, uh, I think the first Spider-Man movie could be in that conversation. Logan's definitely in that conversation. And um, and, and I think probably Iron Man as well, because like that was also a, a release. Like you talk about impact, right? And lessons learned from that movie. um. There's a hell of a lot of of footprints uh, all over – or fingerprints, I guess I should say, all over the current Hollywood landscape because of what that film achieved and the, the, the tone and tenor that it took to superheroes as well. Um, but yeah, just on like a pure craftsmanship level, I I feel like it's – this is probably like the gold standard. I think The
0: Dark Knight is the best comic book movie of all time to this point. And I would be surprised if we got something like this anytime soon. Part of it is because of when it came out, it was the perfect storm of things to make this what it is. The right creators at the right time. Um, the, it utilized and pulled from real world subject matter to make a movie that would resonate with people at that time. And maybe for all time. Um, it's got the best villain we've ever had Uh, probably one of the best supporting cast we've ever had not just in terms of character but in terms of actor Um, it's got one of the best scores we've ever had for a superhero movie Uh, it's almost perfect and I I think the things that people critique it for um, don't matter when it comes to what makes a film good? And that is a conversation that people will probably continue to have until the end of time. But when you're talking about the best of the best and the cream of the crop, I think you look no further than The Dark Knight. Fish, fish, pasta, pasta, fish, fish, pasta, pasta, pasta. <laughs> and with fish, that, fish. I'm done talking about this because you've ruined it for me, Phil. Uh but no, I, I'm I'm always excited to be able to talk about this film. I think it is groundbreaking, regardless of whether you think it's the best or not. Uh it it definitely impacted the movies that we're watching uh very much. And I'm interested to hear what you guys have to say about this subject. Do you think that the Dark Knight is the greatest superhero movie of all time? What is your relationship with this film? And
3: Tell us why uh Dark Knight Rises sucks.
0: Marco, have you seen it?
3: Yeah, I've seen it.
0: Did you think it sucked? No. Oh, okay.
1: <laughs> Listen, I'm bringing. We're bringing Sean down to our level. It's like gravity. All it needs is a little push.
2: <laughs> Holy shit! <laughs> You're so, really
3: yeah. good at this. <laughs> yeah, so I've been like appreciating it. them.
0: Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> there are plenty of ways that you guys can let us know your thoughts about this movie or anything we've talked about on the show uh you can get us on soundcloud or apple podcasts we are at the comics pals wherever your social media is sold you can write to us with a random question of the week a buy or sell or your comments on this or any other episode of the comics pals by writing in at the comics pals at gmail.com and last but not least we're on youtube where if you're on there you can like this video share with your friends drop us a comment and subscribe to our channel it's free to do and it helps us out a lot more than it costs you so head over there and hit that subscribe button, hit the notification bell so that you get reminded when we drop our content
2: and uh, with that let's do some plugs, Pete Cool. Thank you guys so much for joining us here on another episode of the Comics Pals. Uh, if you guys want to get some more content from me, you can catch me on our sister show, The Video Game Pals, along with Sean, where we uh, talk about video games, as you might have guessed. Uh, I, You know what? I don't know what the hell we're talking about this week, but we're going to have the whole gang back together for the first time in quite some time. So that's something I'm very, be back. very much looking forward Yeah, you included, Phil. Uh, because Ooh. I had to edit the show last week and that sucked. So, um, I'm, I'm excited to be back to host and I'm excited to have you back to edit. Uh, and then you can also catch me on, uh, our Let's Play show Monday through Thursday called Pals Play over on our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash the comics pals, along with Thompson, uh, one of the guys over on the video game pals this week. We are back with more Detroit Become Human. Uh, we did a, uh, a round of those. A week or two ago, and uh, we got some feedback from the audience that you guys wanted to see more. So we're coming back with more. So go tune in and uh, enjoy them. And yeah, yeah, unless you tell us, you know, you don't want to see more, we're going to keep that one going for a bit. Uh, but if you got any ideas for other games you'd like to see us play before the fall rolls in, now's your chance to get them in because we're going to have Spider-Man, we're going to have Red Dead, we're going to have lots of other things to play. So uh, go check that out if you never have. I'd really appreciate it. I have a lot of fun doing that show. And uh, we'd love to get some more interaction on those videos. So even if you're an audio listener, it would be awesome if you could go check out some of that video-exclusive content over on our YouTube channel. And if you want to connect with me on social media, I'm at loud underscore Pete on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, I just dropped a, a beat, too. I've been writing music for the last two years. I finally put out uh, one of my first pieces that I've been working on for a while. So uh, there's a link to that on my Instagram. Go check that out. Uh, or follow the Jetpack Advantage on SoundCloud. SoundCloud.com slash the Jetpack Advantage. There Thank you. you. Go. Look at Pete. I got stuff this week, you guys. No <laughs> kidding.
3: Uh, you can find me. Shut up, Pipsqueak. I'm
1: Earth69Kale, and I am the quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys.
3: <laughs> what? <laughs> Pete, you okay? Jesus. <laughs> The 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 other funny thing is that Pete's like a mile away from the mic and I can still hear him. Right. Shut up, motherfucker! I'm a giant ass
1: quarterback. I'm a big jock in Earth sixty nine. It's the sex number. That's why it's funny. If you want to check the haps over with my world, you can check out NFL training camp where I'm a big old quarterback. Hut hut! Let's go touchdown! Back to you, Marco
2: cool <laughs> you didn't even plug his social media find <laughs> kale at tono and tow that's t-o-t-o-i-n-t-o-w go buy his comic from the deep uh it's on Comicsology. panels publishing is his publishing company that published the book uh he made it with letty wilson go check it out it's good
3: oh and he well, has me a- on
2: he- at nfl Dallas Cowboys <laughs> on Twitter and
3: he and he also has a Kickstarter with Hellcat Press that you guys can go support. Uh, definitely do. He's writing a it's part of an anthology that he's writing with Letty as well. So definitely go check that out. You can find me at Mr Marco Animoto on Instagram and Twitter. Talk to me about indie things, horror things, swamp thing. Ah. Uh, uh, <laughs>
1: Phil. <laughs> yeah, cut him off. <laughs>
0: I've done a lot of that.
1: Um, my name is Phil, as you all know, and. If you want to see all the coolest happenings at San Diego Comic-Con, just follow me on Twitter and Instagram at ZyborgBab. Also, if you're a fan of the Comics Pals podcast, which of course you are if you're listening at this point, make sure you check out our latest book club on Batman
0: Gothic. Batman Gothic.
1: It tells the latest tale on Batman's battles against a 15th century monk. Monk. It's really good. 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 Check it out. Out.
0: Out. And as for me, I'm <laughs> on Twitter and Instagram at Sean Soapbox. Talk to me about the Dark Knight. Ask him how we got those scars. Uh, yeah. So with that, we're the Comics Pal signing off. <laughs> Take care, guys.
3: <laughs> See you next week. Bye. Uh, thanks for listening. <laughs> He <laughs> forgot it.
2: Yeah, I was like, mother, you motherfucker. <laughs>